Order and chaos are the yang and yin of the famous Taoist symbol. Two serpents, head to tail. Order is the white masculine serpent, chaos its black feminine counterpart. The black dot in the white and the white in the black indicate the possibility of transformation. Just when things seem secure, the unknown can loom, unexpectedly and large. Conversely, just when everything seems lost, new order can emerge from catastrophe and chaos. For the Taoists, meaning is to be found on the border between the ever-entwined pair. To walk that border is to stay on the path of life, the divine way. And that's much better than happiness. Nat, been looking forward to this episode for a long time. I know, we have had this episode loosely planned for months now. Yeah. Probably uh, almost since we started the podcast. Yeah, because I think the book was announced. Quite a while ago, yeah. So we knew something was coming. And it's funny, when it got announced, I remember both of us were a little disappointed. Yeah. Right? Because (laughs) it's the way it's titled is, I think, questionable. And it makes sense in the intro when he explains why he came up with this. And it actually lends itself to a fantastic structure. But when we saw the title, we were like, really? Yeah, That's the direction he's going? So, and the book, of course, the one we're talking about is 12 Rules for Life, An Antidote to Chaos by Jordan Peterson. And um, yeah, I thought, so two things. One, when I pre-ordered it, I was like, oh, this is going to be like very elementary and like, not as detailed because yeah, I mean we'd both been following his other work and it's very detailed it's kind of gets really into the weeds of all the things that he talks about mythology religion psychology philosophy um, yeah. yeah philosophy and when I saw the title I was like this is just going to be like it's truly mainstream targeted it's not going to be interesting but fine I'll pre-order it because I've taken a lot of free content from you yeah but then I got I ordered the physical copy like I was telling you right. and I got it and, I, and it showed up and I was Actually, I guess I never looked at how many pages it was going to be. So I was very impressed by like the size of it, which I know is like not always a indicator of how good the book is. But yeah. it was clearly like not a, you know, 200 page, like could have been a blog post type of book. That, that was actually <laughs> that one was of the things about. that I kept thinking as I was reading it is that this is one of the most not blog postable books <laughs> yeah. I think I've read in a while. And it's so hard to... Um, you know, we'll, we'll link to this, but I did my key takeaways post for this, which, as you know, I don't do too often. Yeah. But when I do them, I do them detailed. Like <laughs> well, yeah, uh, I mean, my notes, like my highlights were 9,000 yeah, words. Exactly. And like I was trying to summarize each rule and it's like each rule turned out to be like 700 to 1,000 words yeah. for summarizing of it. And it's just, yeah, it's not an easy book to turn into a blog post, yeah. uh, which is really good. It means there's a, right. and there's a lot of value in actually buying the book and reading it. Well, and that's why I enjoyed doing my notes and highlights yeah. was because trying to find the right things in each section to pull out and keep was, it, it was a challenge. Obviously you get more from some rules than others. And I think also in that way, it's a great book to come back to in the future. Yeah. Right. Where there were some rules that I took tons of highlights, some where I took fewer, but I could see that changing over time as well. Right. And as we get into the rules, like some of the rules were like more targeted for parents. Some were very relevant to our lives now, I would say. So it just, yeah, I think it's one of those, it's almost, it's not exactly like it, but kind of like 48 laws of power where you know, yes, you can sit and read the whole thing. And I do recommend that for 12 rules for life, but you'll probably revisit certain rules as they become relevant to your life. Yeah. And I suppose it's worth mentioning for anyone who doesn't know, Jordan Peterson is a now fairly famous psychologist and professor of psychology at the University of Toronto. 
uh, Canada. He used to be a professor at Harvard as well. Yeah. And he has spent most of his, you know, he's a practicing psychologist, so he works with patients. Psychotherapist, I think is how he calls it. Yeah. I'm never sure on the terminology there, but yeah, I forget what the uh, exact difference is, but I know there is a difference. I just don't remember exactly what it is. But yeah, so he's practicing, he's a lecturer, but he's also spent most of his life studying religion, mythology, and especially how that ties into psychology and its practice. And before this, he'd only written one other book, Maps of Meaning. Yeah, which, which I was, bought, which I haven't read yet, but I have It's massive, right? It's massive. Yeah, yeah it's, it was a 20-year project, right? <clears throat> and where he's basically tying in all this stuff from religion and mythology into how we find meaning in our lives. Right. And... I think I assume very few people have read that book. <laughs> yeah, I think it started to sell a lot better now on sure Amazon just partially because of this. So it used to be, um, I know when I first came across him, like maybe over a year ago, mm-hmm. I, you know, the first thing I went was like, oh, does this guy have a book? Because it's like super interesting stuff he's talking about. And I saw Maps of Meaning, but it was almost like sold like a textbook. Yeah. So the price point was like a textbook. Yeah, I think it's like 60 bucks on Amazon. So now it's 60 bucks new, but there's a lot of used copies that have popped up on Amazon too. So I think I got mine for like 25 or something and it's really good condition. So I was fine with it. But I know back, I think that's partially just because he's gotten more popular. So maybe they've done reprintings or yeah, I don't know why it's come down, but it's come down, which is good. I, I expect it'll probably come down even lower if he continues to be kind of this popular. If you support his Patreon, you get it for free. Oh, really? Okay, cool. Well, I should have known that. (laughs) Oh, well. (laughs) But uh, he only really got famous in the last year or so. Yeah, and actually, we'll talk about that for real briefly, too, is so he initially kind of got some notoriety probably is the way to the right word uh, because of his opposition to this bill in Canada, which, you know, I haven't... uh, Bill C-16. Bill C-16. And the bill is basically... As far as I understand it, and you know, maybe other people understand it better, but as far as I understand it, it essentially makes calling somebody by the wrong gender pronoun essentially a hate crime. Right. So if you know Nat wants to go by like Z or any of these other gender pronouns that are out there, and then I decline to use one of those pronouns, I can be charged with a hate crime. Not in the U.S. This is in Canada, right. and so he's fundamentally opposed to that, and just said he's not going to comply with that, and. Um, the university, he's a tenured professor, I think, right? Because otherwise they could have just fired him. So I, I wasn't sure on that point. I couldn't remember because I know that... There are ways to what remove I remember, a tenured professor. Yeah, because I think he explained it on Joe Rogan at one point okay. where it seemed like the university was going to fire him. Yeah. And then he talked to the press and all of the press got behind him and oh, started so they didn't. Yeah, condoning the university for being so ridiculous about okay, this. Yeah. <laughs> and so then the university just couldn't fire him. Yeah. Uh, especially because he's basically one of their most popular professors. Yeah. His lectures are always packed and full of students. And we should clarify, too, that he's not opposing the gender pronoun stuff no, because he's a bigot or anything. It's much more about a free speech issue yeah. from his standpoint that you can't be compelled to use any word, whether it's a gender pronoun or just language even. Yeah. Can't like compel people to speak in English, right? If they want to speak in French or in Spanish, they can speak in French or Spanish. That's all what free speech is like all right. about. Right. So basically he's saying you just can't compel me to use these gender pronouns. Yeah. Um, and, and especially, and I think that was especially motivated by his life's work. Yes. Because yeah. he touches on the masculine, feminine, male, female dynamic a lot yeah. in this book, in his lectures. And then he's sort of fighting against a lot of the postmodernist interpretation, which yeah. is that, you know, nothing is true, right? Everything is relative and subjective. And, you know, there is no, no like objective good, no true, like, 
sex or anything. Everything is open to interpretation. Everything's open to interpretation. You create your own reality and you can't impose your reality on anyone else. Yeah. Right. Well, the interesting thing is I saw him speak in New York actually a few weeks ago. And I think that was literally the day the book came out. He was in New York. And um, he spent the first half of the lecture actually talking about Mm postmodernism. And talking, like he started with saying that exact premise, right? That this is the postmodernist hypothesis, basically. And then he followed that up by saying, and they're right. But he's like, they're right to an extent. And that extent gets sort of like, because you can say in a lot of ways, right? Things Mm -hmm. are open to someone's viewpoint and their background and how their sort of personal experience is coloring their view of any set of objective events. Right. So to that extent, okay, yes, they have a kernel of truth in it but then they take that to way too far of an extreme right and then that's what he spent the most of the lecture about yes yeah, kind of like breaking down why that's incorrect which we're going to get into as well but and i think the biggest example of that that's easiest to see is a lot of the intense virtue signaling that mm-hmm. goes on now where if you are not a hundred percent open to someone else's interpretation of the world then you are a bad person well it's a very anti-science viewpoint really yeah. if you think about it it's like you're saying there is nothing objective about anything really. right and then what peterson's talking about and what exactly what you just said a lot of these people who are very deep in this postmodernist philosophy they're like very anti-logic yeah. as well and very anti-math also like i saw this one article have you heard of this the, or saw it i think it was like the atlantic or somebody it was mm-hmm. i don't know if it was the atlantic it was some like reputable outlet talk we can find it um saying that math is like a patriarchal yeah well this uh, is like construct a or something well this is a one of the weird consequences of we some of the postmodernist arguments on the, the darwin episode about how math is like not some human interpret. It, yeah, it it's exists. like fundamental. It's a fundamental it's reality. part of the universe. Yeah. You know, we discovered it. We didn't So like we were it. saying, if we found aliens, right, and they knew what math was, that would not be surprising exactly. whatsoever. It'd be surprising if they used, you know, one, two, yes, three, four. Yes, and that's four. where the subjective thing is, right? Or what, like how we use a base 10 system yeah. is because we have 10 fingers. That's one hypothesis, at least. Right. right. So if some other creature had like 25 digits, right, like, and they used a base 25, sure, you know, that's still within the realm of possibility and that's where the interpretation happens but the fundamental nature of numbers doesn't change yeah right well and that's so. it's sort of like the weird extension from postmodernism is that there's also this argument that all and we're, we're, we're getting out of our philosophical depths it's here because okay. we need to do a postmodernism <laughs> episode i think but as yeah, i understand yeah, it yeah. it'd be fun right yeah. uh apparently reading derrida is just the worst thing in the world so we might need to read like I don't know, but then you can't read a summary. You got to go to the story. We'll, we'll figure it out. Uh, but one of the arguments <laughs> is that like pretty much all authority and like difference in status comes from power and right, abuse yeah. of power. And so any current differences are because there is some like power and controlling force, right? It's not a competence or a natural result in the environment. It's because somebody took power from someone else. And so part of the argument is that science and logic are actually tools of a of, power hungry patriarchy, patriarchy the... in order to suppress everyone else. And so if you're using logic, then you are enforcing the current patriarchy, right? Which is just a crazy argument. But so, you actually see this come up. No, you hear, which is insane. Yeah. But then there's also, uh, there's another podcast I heard. Um, it's definitely in my library, so I'll find it. It's a uh, one, it was some like not that well known podcast last year that Peterson went on. Mm-hmm. Um, 
I saw him tweet about it, so I listened to the episode, and it was the guy, the host, brought up a really good point where he was like, "So the host is a is a straight white male, right?" And he yeah. was saying that he's like, "People like me right now are viewed as like the oppressors, quote unquote oppressors, right?" So he's like, "What I'm trying to understand is what is the goal of the postmodernists? So are they basically saying they have to sort of tear down this straight white male patriarchy?" for some X period of time that we go into like timeout essentially. <laughs> and then after, cause if you think about it, right, let's say you tear them down successfully. Yeah. Now are they the oppressed? Right. Right. And at what point do they become the oppressed? Right. Is it like some based on some time factor? Like if they become beaten down for like 200 years, are they now the, now they're allowed down minority to that, compete. right. Yeah. Exactly. So is it like a timeout? Like he was, he was like, is it like the penalty box in hockey where you go <laughs> sit for like <laughs> two years and then you're allowed to participate again on equal footing or something? Well, like, I think like he's like, what is the goal? Like, what are they asking for? Like if they could wave a magic wand, like what is, what would society look like? Right. Yeah. Cause they're, you can make that argument indefinitely. Like, cause if, if let's say you do beat down straight white males and they become, you know, minority that has no power, like at some point in time, you have to admit that becomes an oppressed group yeah. under their definition. So like, where does it end? Well, and he, he's making a few good points about that in the intro too, yeah. where he basically says that socialist Russia and or communist oh, Russia and yeah. communist China is peasants. what you get. Also, right? like in the Soviet Union. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. He's basically saying like, if you truly believe that we need to tear down whoever currently has, you know, more authority, mostly as a result of just natural, like competitive results, right? Then, well, yeah, because there's an unequal balance of effort, as Joe Rogan said on his episode, yeah. and there's also an unequal balance of just genes. Well, and too, and upbringing, and like the world is not an equal place. Like yeah. anyone who thinks it is is living in some fantasy delusion. <laughs> and, and Peterson made this point too that there will always be a Pareto distribution in everything. There right? is a the fact that we see it exactly because yeah. we see it in nature, right? Yeah. We see it in the size of stars, in the yield of plants. Yeah. We see it in like landmass, yeah. right? It's everywhere, and so it's natural that that will also. Rear That's not itself. a human construct. It's not a human construct. Yeah. It just happens. It's like gravity. Like gravity is not part of the patriarchy. It's yeah. just like <laughs> it is. <laughs> yeah, and part of his argument is that if you try to fight that too much, you end up with you know one of these communist regimes where tens of millions of people die, right? Yeah. The most destructive periods in history were created by people trying to perfectly level the playing yeah. field for everyone. Which I think we've talked about briefly on some of the other episodes, yeah. but it's worth bringing well, it up again. Well, it came up in emergency. Yeah. Well, it's worth bringing up again, right? It's like, it's right now, at least in modern day times, right? It's like very offensive to bring up like the Nazi example of saying like, oh, we should bring that back. Like nobody, yeah. most people, I would say there is a, you know, a contingent that says, oh, that's fine. But like, the 99.9% .9 of people think that's like really fucked up. Yeah. So like Nazi Germany is not something we want the world to emulate. But you don't see that with communism and socialism. Right. Even though like killed way more people. But it's like kind of cool in some parts of society to say like, you know, to wear like a Castro t-shirt or like. Or like a hammer and sickle yeah, or like, something like that, right? That's totally acceptable. You know, if you walked into a cafe in Berkeley and you had a hammer and sickle on your laptop, you'd probably get away with it. I'm pretty if sure you walked you, in yeah. with a Nazi flag on your laptop, you're not going to get no. away with it. But there's a compelling argument that- For good reason. Yeah, for good reason. We're not saying that you should get away with no. both of them. Uh, I mean, well, now we're getting into tricky territory, yeah. right? It's like, well, the free speech. No, right? but I can see what- Like, I'm not saying it should be regulated. No. But I'm saying, like, people can give you shit People for, should give you yes. shit if you have the hammer and sickle as well. <laughs> yeah. Because that has killed more people than any other ideology, yep. right? But I think it's, like, the intentions part. So people think, oh, well, it's good intentions, or, like, it was just executed wrong, or, like, yeah. there's literally not a good example of this working. 
ever. That like point, even Venezuela right now. Venezuela's a freaking mess. And that's sort of what happens yeah. when because their government acted pretty proactively. To, they even had great natural resources. Yeah, right? that was the problem. Because yeah. <laughs> you could say that that, would, that can prop up for a while, right? If you have great natural resources, funny enough, you're participating in the capitalist system. If right. you have great natural resources, <laughs> right, you're selling those to prop up your communist regime to someone else, you know, for yeah. essentially a profit, like more than you mind them for. Right? Well, that's the thing is like socialism doesn't say that nobody should have money. They say that somebody else should have the money. Right. And it's usually the people who don't have it who really yeah, exactly. are in favor of that. Uh, but yeah, it's like the communist Russia example is perfect where they took all the most productive farmers in the country and sent them to the camps because they needed to redistribute their resources. Yeah, essentially killing them. But then you just killed all of your most productive farmers. So the whole country starved. Yeah. It's like that is not a good solution. We could do um, another book that would be really interesting to do related to a lot of these, like, I think Peterson's book, it's mostly not about this. This is just the historical backdrop. But seeing like a state is actually a lot about these types of projects, not just in Soviet Russia or China, but also in like other countries where which might be sort of dual type of systems, like even the US or France or countries like that, where they kind of try to implement these top down projects, which seem to make a lot of like logical sense mm -hmm. or too much logical sense, let's put it that way, right. but don't really reflect the bottom up reality. And it's really interesting because, yeah, it, I mean, it's more academic, but it's a really interesting book from that yeah, perspective. I've heard good things. Yeah, I think I heard about it from multiple people and that's why I picked it up yeah. like last year and it was, okay. re it was really we good. We should add that to the list. That'd be another like GEB one where we have yeah. to give ourselves No, it takes some time. I think it took yeah. me like a month and a half to read it. So yeah, it's a good book. Uh, um, the way we got on some of this with the postmodernism stuff, was kind of tying some of that together is that he's pretty harsh against the whole virtue signaling idea. Yeah. And back to your question about, you know, what's the goal? It does feel like a big part of the goal with some of the postmodernist arguments is just to look moral. And <laughs> yeah. I think this is like, a well, you, you bring up the good point. Uh, I think maybe on another episode where you were like, when people at Middlebury are talking about how there's too many white students on campus, it's yeah. like always white Leave. students who yeah. are doing it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's like, why don't you give up your spot right put some like, skin in the game yeah. right it's like people are doing it just to look good they don't necessarily actually want this well maybe they do or they think they do yeah but so much of it is just uh and, and honestly i think that there is a big compulsion on a lot of like white males in particular to try to look as yeah. non-racist as possible and as non-sexist yeah but then in doing that you end up like creating this weird false reality where you have to comply with everything right in order to to, you know, assuage your own fears that you're going to come off as a bigot. Yeah. And I mean, the thing that's really strange is like a lot of the same people who do that are the same people who, and we'll get more into this next week, but like are the same people who like, if you ask them about science, will like vehemently believe in science. Like they'll be like, right. you know, they'll look at Tesla releases <laughs> and like SpaceX launches and like, you know, be in admiration of like the latest gadget that comes out and and they believe in global warming, right? Like in all these, and they talk about other people as being like science deniers. Right. But then if you brought up like gender differences, they would like not necessarily be in favor of the science. And that which is, instance. which is a weird, it's very thing weird because science should not be ideology driven. It, it shouldn't should depend on what we're applying science to. Right. Like it's, it's still science. science. Right. And for some reason, we give a pass when it comes oh, yeah. to anything related to humans. Yeah. And especially around like... It's dangerous. Yeah, it is really dangerous. dangerous. Like, yeah. especially around sex and race and all of that stuff. Yep. Like, 
nobody wants to talk about it. Probably especially white people because it's like well, you almost can't talk. You about almost it can't. You're white. Right? Yeah. And like in certain circles, the minute you say anything about it, then people are just like, oh, boom, bigot. Right. And that's a crazy world to live in. Yeah. Where it's like you know I can't imagine being a scientist. Yeah. Right. Like that would be so hard having to do this research. It takes somebody like Charles Murray. Yeah. Right. Where he spends. Oh, I need to read more about him. I've heard he's very interesting. I don't know yeah. very much about him actually. Well, he's the guy who did the research around IQ differences across different races. Okay. Right. Which is obviously a super contentious thing yeah. to research. But it's but a valid scientific question. It's a valid scientific question. His research is some of the most backed up research ever done because <laughs> what happened is like he did the research. Kind of it forces proved it to be. Very well, it proved that there were differences. Yeah. Right. And exactly. now obviously individual variation is higher than group. Exactly. Variation. Which Peterson always talks about for gender stuff too, which we'll yeah. get to. We'll but, get to that. Too. Yeah. But Murray has just been treated as like this horrible, terrible bigot for his entire life because yeah. of this research and all these. But as a result, everybody tries to do research to disprove him and they end up kind of confirming the effect. And so now it's one of the most backed up Very findings like in science, huh. which is crazy. But to his credit, if you look at his Twitter, he's just like the most lighthearted, like nice dude. He's like not bitter about it at all. Like he kind of gets it. His Twitter bio is something like, uh, he's like a, a bunch of nice things like father, scientist, like researcher, all of this. Also bigot, like <laughs> sexist, terrible human, depends on who you ask. <laughs> But it's sad that, like, if you do science in certain areas, then you just get destroyed, not using it for anything malicious. Right. And It'd be like, one thing if he was doing that exactly. and then saying, because of this, we need, you know, discrimination and different laws and all of that. Right. But it's another thing to say that you can't do research. Right. right. And it's also he's not saying there's no individual variation. This is not That's what he's talking thing. about. Yeah. The, the only consequence of these variations across groups is that at the extremes, you'll see more people. Yeah. Right. Which is the example Peterson gives, which I think is really good, which is that men are on average, more aggressive than women. Yeah, which but it's is like not 60, a 40. controversial, it should not be a controversial statement. Yeah. So if you had a group of, you know, 10 men and women, you would probably get it partially wrong, which ones are the most aggressive, yeah. right? Because it's a small sample. But when you go to the extremes, most or of the hyper aggressors. Or if you were asking an, about an individual person, like right. if you just showed me a picture of a woman and a picture of a man and was like, who's more aggressive? Like you're basically you're going to be wrong a decent amount of time. It's yeah. 60, 40, right? Because like, let's say you just pick the man. I mean, Four out of 10 times, you're going to be wrong, which right. is pretty significant. It's pretty significant. Yeah. yeah. But when you get to the extremes, you'll just see all more. of the violent aggressors are pretty much men. Yeah. Right. I mean, There's like, like jail too. extremely few women in there. Yeah. yeah. And with jail. And I mean, like even, you know, and you'll say, OK, yeah, well, there's a lot of women in jail, too. But so okay, many but of them numbers, got mixed up. Yeah, no, in, like, but let's say what guys are doing as well. I don't well. know the exact percentage. We can definitely look it up. But there are definitely more men than women in jail. Oh, yeah. Like 100 percent. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> well, but especially and also with violent offenses. Right. Too. Exactly. Right. It's like the number of homicides committed by men versus women. It's, you know, the women's is almost a rounding error. Right. Yes, yeah, exactly. Huge. So there, I mean, that's an objective thing. Like no one's making that up right. to be bigoted or say that like women can't be aggressive. Like there's, pl and also men can be passive. Like there are plenty of passive yeah. men out there too. And there's plenty of aggressive women out there too. So like by saying this blank, this generalized statement of men are more aggressive than women, it doesn't mean that there is not a individual woman who is more aggressive than an individual man. Yeah. It's just in aggregate. You, like you watch the UFC. Yeah. There's some fucking terrifying women <laughs> yeah. who I would exactly. never want to like meet in a dark alley. Though, no. Right. But <laughs> unless they were on your team. Yeah. Unless they were on your team. That'd be great. <laughs> uh, but as this relates to the book, what Peterson does, I think a very good job of is if you can kind of take off those blinders for a second yeah. and read what he's saying, he does a great job of maintaining, you know, what the science says about us as humans 
and you know what that means for what we should do in our day to day. And you kind of have to like de I don't, I don't even know what the term is for this, but I guess like, yeah, you have to take off those like glasses that make you want to see things as racist and bigoted. Yeah. And then like read it more carefully because he'll say things like uh, he's got a section in here about how the masculine is typically seen as orderly and the feminine is seen as chaotic. Right. And at first I can come off as like, oh, bad. Right. Yeah, right. <laughs> but then you read into it and you kind of see like where he's going with it yep. a lot of the points. And there's, you know, interesting arguments in there, but it requires removing some of that initial that reaction, origin, which we'll get more into. But like the orderly argument is actually the patriarchy. Yeah. Which is like what he actually acknowledges, too. He's like, of course, this the patriarchy is the sort of forced order that society is putting on you. So he's kind of agreeing in that sense with the people who are like, down with the patriarchy but like yeah yeah um no but i think also that's why his book is so much better as a book than a blog post or something mm. and it's really hard to get a sense for his arguments in any form other than the book or if you listen to like a three-hour podcast with like joe rogan or something i was gonna say i think this is way better than listening to him speak i think because so. he, he can break- has a really hard time <laughs> keeping the narrative when he speaks well like, kind of like two other podcasts yeah i know we, yeah, <laughs> and we, we are the last well. people who can make that criticism <laughs> but. exactly yeah he, just, he goes on a lot of tangents. Yeah, if you think we way. go on tangents, you yeah. should listen to him try to do his biblical series. Although in person, he was really, um, he wasn't going on tangents. So he actually, he went in a lot of different directions, mm-hmm. but he broke it down. He kind of like at the beginning gave the overall structure and was like, so I'm going to make this point, this point, this point, this point, and then get to the overall point. Oh, okay. So he kind of like laid it out. And if he hadn't done that, you would have been like, well, how's he jumping from this to this? But it's like you needed all four points before he can move on. So it wasn't really tangents in that one. Got it. But if you hadn't heard that intro, you would you be would like, where is he going? Like, how is he going to each of these he things? He probably got that feedback. Probably. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, probably. Order stuff a bit more. But yeah, you're right. In the biblical lectures, like he jumps all over the place, which is they're really like good, me- though. Kind of like made you think. Kind of like made you think. <laughs> I suppose we should get into the actual yeah, rules of the book. Yep. So uh, we should also mention that the rules come off as very simple and in some ways a little obtuse. Yeah. And then there's a lot of really rich stuff underneath them where you kind of have to go through the whole chapter some of the, to really get it. Well, and even some of like the titles of the rules and like even now I still don't necessarily get the full, like it doesn't capture the full nature of the chapter. Mm. Uh, the rules are, I wonder if this is a publisher idea to do like the rules like this. No, this is definitely Peterson. Oh, you think so? Oh yeah, this sounds like him. The rule names sound yeah, like Yeah, yeah, the rule names sound yeah, like him. Yeah, I just, I mean, I guess like, well, let's, let's see. So good way to capture call, it. Call it out when we what, get to one that makes So not rule way. one, but yeah. rule one makes a lot of sense. So when we get to one that you felt didn't make yes, sense. Yes, definitely. Well, it's not that it doesn't make sense. It just doesn't capture the full. Doesn't capture it, yeah. yeah. Well, um, I don't think it's supposed to though. Yeah, I don't think right. I think it's only supposed to remind you of the deeper ideas Ah, and they're supposed to be easy to remember snippets, right? Because he's thinking of this from a biblical mythology stance, which is like, you know, when you say Cain and Abel, you immediately bring back the, oh, okay, the one who has less killing the one who has more out of, you know, spite and resentment. So you get the gist. So you get the gist just from that like little snippet. That makes more sense. Yeah. So it's not meant as a descriptive title of the chapter necessarily. Yeah. It's just supposed to be maybe the underlying thing yeah. that everything else branches off of. And that if you just keep that one piece in mind, the rest Almost comes like how Taleb does his chapter titles. Like his chapter titles are often like the chapter title is like one thing. And then there'll be like a very long subtitle. Oh yeah. That'll be like all the different little, parts. Little different but if parts. you ignore the subtitle, oftentimes the total chapter title doesn't necessarily cover much of what the chapter is about. Right. You need like yeah, the, subtitles, the subtitles, which in this case, obviously there weren't. But I think what you're saying is makes a lot of sense. 
I think you're right. All right, let's All right. hop in with rule one. Stand up straight with your shoulders back. So Jordan Peterson likes lobsters. Yeah, a lot. <laughs> Big fan of lobsters. <laughs> and that's kind of how he opens up this chapter. Where he's basically saying that lobsters have been around for some 300 million years. Yep. Dinosaurs have occurred in the later part of the lobster's existence, yeah, which is wild. Uh, and that they're still around. And they're still around. Yeah, they just like lived through pretty much most of biological history or like complex biological history. And even crazier is their sort of uh, neurochemistry is very similar to humans. Yeah. Like so they use serotonin. They use right? serotonin. Yeah. Kind of crazy. But he's basically saying that lobsters fight for territory and yeah. they compete on territory. And, you know, when the males win or lose, they react in certain physiological ways. The losers scrunch up, get hunched over, smaller. They'll run away from a fight. They'll, you know, fight less intensely. They'll be less attractive to mates. Uh, all bad things. Whereas the winners will strut like, around, strut around like big happy lobster, <laughs> yep. right? Uh, much more confident. They're likely to win more fights. They'll fight more. They'll fight more. And he's basically saying that you know we're just like lobsters. And when we lose, we get closed off, we shirk in the corner, we hunch down, we look like losers, right? I mean, yeah. when you say somebody looks like a loser. Or someone's down. Or someone's down. Literally, you have a pretty down. good idea yeah. of what that looks like. Yep. Right? Even the clothing and cleanliness, things that you think of when you hear like loser or like baggy clothing and stuff like that, it all comes together in this image of somebody who is like collapsing in on themselves, yeah. right? Whereas a winner has also a fairly clear chest image in your head. Down, Chest is up, shoulders up back, standing up tall, right? And those are extremely old biological processes because, you know, lobsters that are 300 million years old do them, we do them, apes do them, yeah. dogs do them, right? It's like everything does this. Which is why we can instantly recognize that. Like, I bet babies can recognize when someone's feeling, like, depressed or get, like, understand the sad feel Because it's probably just so built in. Yeah. It's like, because, I mean, as you're saying, it's not just dogs or humans or chimps. It's, like, lobsters. Yeah. <laughs> right? Like, <laughs> as far back as lobsters. <laughs> yeah, it's everything. Yeah. And his basically what he's saying here is that you want to look like a winner yeah right well i think what he's saying which I, at least the way i took it is that you can sort of hijack your neurochemistry yeah. in a way that a dog or an animal can't where we can sort of act the part and then that actually affects your neurochemistry so it's not just a one-way cycle it's actually a two-way cycle right. where it's like yeah okay you might take an l right in life and that'll get you down so that will physically reflect but if you can sort of act like you just got to win or, you know, you're act, quote, acting like a winner. So you're standing up, shoulders back, standing up tall, you know, chest out kind of thing, right? Like that actually affects your brain chemistry. Yeah. And even if you've just taken a loss, like you might actually not feel that way then. So you can almost act the part and then become the part. Right. Um, and I think that's a really cool message. It's like a really good way to start. And it's really important too, because what he highlights here is, and again, he's a practicing psychotherapist. And he brings up the point that depression is a, it's got like a positive reinforcement loop where you might start to get depressed because you lost something or you're feeling lonely. And so because you're feeling depressed, you close yourself off, you're scrunched up, you're, you know, acting in a depressed way. And so people don't want to spend time with right. you, which makes and you, more, so, likely which makes you more depressed, yep. right? And, you know, more socially isolated, which, you know, it keeps reinforcing itself. Yep. And so part of what you have to do is recognize those destructive positive reinforcement loops when they're happening. I should also highlight this. A positive reinforcement loop is one that feeds on itself. Yes. <laughs> it is not necessarily going in a good direction. Right. right? Yep. It's one that accelerates. 
so, you know, depression is definitely a positive feedback loop in that sense. And what, what we have to do, like you said, is stand up straight with our shoulders back. That's like one way out of the loop. It's one way out. It's only yeah. to break it. Exactly. Yeah. And he highlights specifically putting certain things in our life on autopilot, parts that we need to just control. We've heard that before. We, yeah, exactly. <laughs> Which is great because it's like he's diving into all of these really deep things and then he brings it back to some really simple. Like, kind of what he does in every stuff. chapter, it seems yeah. like. Yeah, it kind of goes really deep into the science and the well this one was less mythology probably in this chapter right uh probably the least actually of all the chapters yeah it was more uh, just biology yeah more biology but then at the end or usually at some point in the chapter he brings it back to like what you can do in your daily life to actually use this yeah and in this case you know one of the things that he says really works is wake up at the same time every day and eat breakfast yeah right a low carb breakfast right high exactly. fat right that. yeah get some uh exactly. get some perfect keto ketones yeah. in there yeah some mushroom coffee maybe. mushroom coffee yeah, yeah. exactly <laughs> a little, uh, put a little butter in it it's excellent but you can also use the discount code yeah exactly made you think or slash think slash i guess think. Yeah. yeah just go to any of those slash <laughs> go to our support page majorthinkpodcast.com you'll find support. it yep. don't be a lobster well okay be a winning lobster <laughs> Yeah, support the podcast and you'll become a winning lobster. That's how it works. <laughs> but he was talking about how um, sleep patterns actually can affect this. So if you right. wake up at the same time every day, roughly the same time every day, it's a really good way to regulate, I guess, your circadian rhythm, which affects your hormones. And so he asks, starts by asking all these questions to his clients if they come in depressed, right? And those are the first steps to, you know, you might not need an antidepressant. You might be okay after doing this. And he's not saying you shouldn't take an antidepressant. He's saying like there are certain cases where you need to. And I've heard him talk about this on his podcast before, where it's like, if somebody is in immediate danger to themselves, or they could be in danger, like to make these other changes in your life, you need to survive. So he's not like, totally against antidepressants. He's against how often they're prescribed right now and that they're just prescribed, you know, as a blanket solution without fixing like the root cause of the problem. So he's not like arguing totally against antidepressants, saying there is a case for them. But. Well, I think yeah, Taleb says something similar that you should definitely use them in a case where suicide is an yeah. imminent threat, yeah. right? Yep. But in the sort of malaise, you know, generalized sadness that so many people end up taking them from, yep. it's a well, it's, it's this positive reinforcement answer. loop that you're talking yeah, about. Yeah. Exactly. And it's it's, you know, giving up control over the problem to the drug. And I, I kind of like how Peterson puts it here. And it, it's unfortunate that this is seen as insulting, right? Because I think that there are a lot of people who are experiencing depression or who feel they're experiencing depression, who hear something like what we're saying, what Peterson is saying that, hey, you know what, get up at the same time every day and eat a high fat breakfast. And they'll be like, oh, that doesn't fix the problem. Or, oh, no, that's so insensitive. Like, how can you say that this is a real problem? Right. And but you know, there's pretty powerful physiological forces at play here, right? Yeah. 300 million well, year affects, old processes. Well, funny thing is, it affects your brain chemistry the same way an antidepressant does. Yeah, that too. It regulates your serotonin level, which exactly. is literally what an antidepressant does. Yeah, like, SSRI, is, selective serotonin yep. reuptake inhibitor, yep. right? If you can control your serotonin in another way, that is the same thing. It's the same thing. But, you know, yeah. much healthier. It's, well, <laughs> and less, okay, so less like instantly powerful because I'm sure it's not going to be, oh, I ate breakfast one day and I feel like... I feel better, I yeah. Feel, like, so it's not like an instant thing, but it does have the same effect if you can do it consistently. Right. So yeah. Well, and it also, you know, it could be that you have created this, you know, decrease in serotonin, right? Because yeah. what he talks about is with the lobsters, they're literally their production of serotonin changes. Yeah. And so they're producing For less lobsters, of it they when they're losers. The lobsters, they grow a new brain. Yeah. That was the crazy. If they lose too much, they, they just grow an entirely new so brain, the, a loser brain. brain. Like, exactly. Yeah. Like <laughs> the brain, like. So if a lobster who had been winning starts losing a lot, their brain literally dissolves, which yeah. is unbelievable. And brain dissolves, they grow like a new loser brain, which is 
kind of i would maybe argue is like kind of maybe similar to like a long-term depression mm-hmm. someone's been depressed for like a long time it might be really hard then for them to get like out of that because i mean this is gonna sound bad but it's like they've almost grown like a loser brain at that well, they, point you literally would have yeah because like all the cells in your body recycle every seven years or something so it's also very cool that's a whole nother tangent which yeah, i'm gonna which skip wild. i'm gonna skip that the, the tangent. ship of theseus <laughs> yeah ship of theseus i believe right? yeah where it's like every cell in your body is different exactly if every cell in your body is different in seven years are you still the same person yeah. hard to say but yeah so you could literally end up changing your physiology over time by staying in that state yeah and that's why this rule is so important right it's like you have to break yourself out of that self-reinforcing loop whenever you start to see it occur and just put yourself back on that track Right, but on like the track that you want to be on, you know, get yourself out of it before it becomes a bigger issue, which is something he comes back to a lot in the book. Yeah, that problems are best dealt with as soon as they start to come up. Yeah, not much later. Don't sleep them under the rug. Right, yeah. it's gonna be way easier oh, yeah, to fix gets, it now than yep. later. Well, and the problem, uh, have you ever heard his podcast episode about the dragon, the kid story? It's like Billy and the Dragon or something. Uh, I, I haven't heard the podcast episode, but it's in the book. Too. It's in the book. Yeah, he talks yeah. about it in the book. In the in the podcast episode, he actually reads it out loud. Oh, fun. Because uh, it's like, I think it's from like 02 or something. It's really old. It's like one of his first lectures that he did in a public kind of sphere. Okay. And he's reading it out loud to a bunch of adults and sort of breaking down like the meaning of it. And when he first said he's going to read a child's book, right, like people started laughing in the audience. Yeah. But then he's like, no, it has a really good lesson. So it's kind of exactly what you're saying. Like sweeping a problem under the rug doesn't make it go away. It just gets bigger and bigger and bigger until you acknowledge it. And then it turns out it's not as big or it actually starts getting a solution once you start to acknowledge it. Dragon shrinks back inside the house. Yep. So there's just the last thing on this chapter, at least that I have on here. There's one quote that is such a Peterson quote, but I think sums up this chapter really nicely go for it so he goes from the book to stand up straight with your shoulders back is to accept the terrible responsibility of life with eyes wide open it means deciding to voluntarily transform the chaos of potential into the realities of habitable order it means adopting the burden of self-conscious vulnerability and accepting the end of the unconscious paradise of childhood where finitude and mortality are only dimly comprehended It means willingly undertaking the sacrifices necessary to generate a productive and meaningful reality. It means acting to please God in the ancient language. So it's such a Jordan Peterson quote, and I love it, and it sums up everything he's talking about here. And it's a perfect example of something we're going to come back to throughout the book, which is the way he interplays things in religion, where he's, you know, he is essentially an atheist. Because he says that he doesn't believe He's in, a Darwinian. He actually describes himself as a Darwinian. Right, right. He doesn't believe in, you know, like this anthropomorphic God that is, you know, creating the universe. But there's all this wisdom in these old biblical stories that he ties into the book. And yeah. I think that turns off some people who oh, I'm sure. are like in the Sam the, Harris types probably. Get, yeah, a lot of I know Sam they're Harris friends, types. but they always they had that big uh I don't know oh. if they're friends. I feel like they're frenemies. There was a podcast <laughs> uh, not a podcast, a uh, Twitter thread a couple days ago. Yeah where a bunch of people were like oh they're going at each other on twitter they weren't going at each other they were like responding to each other then they clarified for everyone where they were like i think sam harris said something like uh when you want to be rational or something you can come back oh yeah something like that (laughs) but yeah it seems like they're actually friends because then like a couple other podcast people came in like uh what's his name dave rubin whatever the rubin report yeah yeah. is yeah he was joining in and it turned out they were just like all it was like good-natured fun i feel like they just like harassing each other yeah (laughs) yeah (laughs) but it's funny because they're both actually like i would actually say peterson's a hyper rationalist in the sense that like he's not talking about mysticism in the sense that like oh there's this like guy in the sky kind of thing like it's exactly what you said i mean by many people's definition he's probably an atheist right but he's viewing 
this is much deeper discussion, but I think he's viewing like subjective experiences equally exposed to Darwinian forces as objective experiences. Mm. So it's not just like selection pressures are not just what nature throws at us. It's like what we throw at ourselves also, or how we interpret things also affects what we're selected for. Right. So and which is where a, he finds the value in a lot of these exactly. stories is that they have some of that immortal quality exactly. to them. Yep. Or they'll help you survive. Or they'll help you survive. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. So I think I, that was one of the biggest discussions that he had with Sam Harris. That, that was their whole first about. podcast episode yeah. was that they spent two hours arguing about the nature of truth. <laughs> right. And so Peterson, I think, was arguing that subjective truth is still truth. Like if the people who believe a set of ideas do better than the people who don't believe a set of ideas, then there's something fundamental about their belief that is in line with reality that's helping them survive. Yes. And Sam Harris was saying that's like baloney, basically. Right. That like if there's nothing that you can observe and test and, you know, which is like a good argument, too. It sounds a lot less scientific, but it could be, you know, just like we're talking about with like you can't observe every force or you can observe the force. You just can't necessarily observe the cause like gravity. Yeah, we don't know necessarily still what like causes gravity, but it's like clearly it exists, right? Like, well, and people I mean, have hypothesized of, about gravity. Is there like a particle of some sort? Is there a wave of some like, you know, I'm not an expert on gravity, but it doesn't seem like we know exactly what causes it. Well, and it provides a good example too in that when we were following, you know, pure Newtonian physics pre Einstein, yes, yep, that wasn't necessarily wrong, yeah. It was just it's sort still of, not wrong. And it's still not wrong, but it's it not also fully kind correct, of is. Though. It's not like yeah. fully correct, right? <laughs> yeah. there's, there's a lot of truths that are in that weird realm mm -hmm. of, you know, there's pretty much nothing that's like 100% objectively true, except maybe math. But then there's a lot of stuff in that subjective range, right? Like relativity is in there too. Yeah. Because that also breaks down at yeah. points. So it's like at uh, what sort of granularity you look at yeah, something. so where do we draw the truth line, right? Yeah. It's like very hard to say. Yeah. Uh, Which is funny enough, a very postmodernist kind of like. It is. Right? Well, it's like, but you have to like. It's like whose perspective are you looking at it from, right? Well, but I, I, I don't know, remember I know where I heard this argument, which I think is like a really good argument in response to this, which is that if it's not useful kind of day to day, essentially, yeah. then that non-reality doesn't matter, right? Because it's sort of like, okay, inductive logic is false, right? Just because something has always happened a certain way does not mean it will continue to. Yeah. Just because the sun has Smart. risen every day so far <laughs> does not mean that it will rise again tomorrow. It's yep. like, but... Could have a turkey problem. Yeah, but like I'm still pretty sure the sun's gonna rise. Yeah, tomorrow, right, right. And so it's like those kinds of crazy distinctions are not that useful. And what I think the mistake people make is that they say like, oh, there's an exception, therefore the whole rule is broken. Yes, it's like, well, right. no, yep. right, because there's no hard rules in the first place. There's always gonna be exceptions. Yeah, and they don't become useless just because yeah, there's an exception. Exactly. To it, right, and this is where a lot of the gender stuff gets tricky because people will say like, oh, well, there are men who are shorter than women, therefore like that distinction is not useful. And it's like, okay, but. <laughs> In general, yeah. men are taller than women. Right. Right. And like that's still a useful heuristic in that sense. Right. right. Like just because the differences break down at some of the extremes doesn't mean they don't work. Right. Which exactly. is, I think, where Peterson's version of the truth is fluid differs from some of the postmodernist extreme yes, versions. Definitely. Just like, I mean, it's the same thing with the gender identity being like your identity not being tied to your biology. That's the argument some people are trying to make. And it's like, no, not that's not really true because it's like, yes, there are people whose identity, their gender identity and their biological gender are not the same. Right. Biological or, sex. Biological say. sex. Yeah. Sure. Correct. <laughs> uh, are not identical. That's true. There are people right. who exist like that. But I would say for past a level of statistical confidence, you could predict somebody's gender identity by looking at their biological sex. Yeah. And that's definitely true. Right. Small exceptions are no reason to throw out generally rule. effective rules. Yeah. Yeah. And I think this comes up later in a different chapter, but it's um, 
going back to what we're talking about for how Peterson thinks about religion, I think Mm -hmm. it's a good way to frame the rest of the book. He has this one section about sacrifices and then about how like uh, he mentions like it's sacrifices are usually observed by other humans and like an aggregate of other humans. And he said there's something he says and it's like almost as if there's somebody in the sky watching your every move Mm. and that yeah yeah. it's a good metaphor right and he's like and then he said it's simplified by thinking about it like there's somebody in the sky but it's like not objectively that Uh, well and in that way a lot of the stories are extremely useful universal truths right right? he talks about noah later right yeah and basically the argument there is like you know predicting flaws doesn't count building arcs does so you know if you don't get your house in order now that's a very like anti-fragile yeah idea. it's like very yeah. skin in the game right uh but yeah like if you don't get your house in order now yeah. then when you know total chaos comes you're gonna drown yeah or it's like setting yourself up so that this you actually benefit from the stressors like in the sense that you're the one who's ready you're the one and, who lasts yeah. you get to pick which animals make it yep. sorry the dinosaurs drowned which yep. is why you know it looks like they're 600 million years old yeah um all right rule, so two. rule two treat yourself like someone you're responsible for helping I love this chapter because it's a great heuristic. Yeah. Yeah. Well, because it's very hard to actually think of yourself like that, like an objective person, like Mm -hmm. somebody else. Right. So, for example, if if you, Nat, came to me and were like, hey, I need help, you know, making sure I I don't know. What what do you need help with? Do you need help with anything? (laughs) I need help making sure I go to the gym every day. Just text me every day at the end of the day asking if I went to the gym. Right. Right. Like I would definitely ask you every day if you went to the gym because that like. Nat asked me for help, right? Yeah. I would, of course, come through. But if, like, I had to keep myself accountable in the same kind of way, it would be, like, much less likely. Right. That I, that I'd be like, oh, I forgot to go. You know, like, I would, like, give myself more leeway or I would be way harsher on myself. Like, if you one day texted me and you're, or if I texted you say, did you go to the gym today? Then you responded being like, oh, I couldn't go today. Like, work got crazy and I wasn't feeling 100%. I'd be like, okay, no, no problem. Hope you feel better go tomorrow yeah if you can right but if i didn't go one day like i would be so pissed off at myself and i wouldn't give myself any slack so he calls it like sort of your internal tyrant Mm. that you have where you try to like tyrannize yourself into being a slave and then of course you're going to rebel against yourself because i mean this is obviously simplification but your two selves kind of hate each other which understandably (laughs) right if you like try to tyrannize yourself into doing something like you'd never treat a friend like that exactly and if somebody was walking around with you yelling at you that you're <laughs> yeah. lazy terrible person yeah. and, you know why aren't you doing all this stuff you wouldn't like that person no, you wouldn't much. hang out with them but no you're, they're trapped with you in your brain right a lot of right. times so uh yeah it's kind of like how he talks about the um kind of like your internal critic almost right right you brought up the pets example which the pets example was so funny yeah that, you want to talk about that one yeah well it's just that uh, medicine for pets gets filled much more frequently than medicine for humans. So like when a prescription is made from a vet, it's more likely to get filled than a prescription made by a doctor because people are better at taking care of their pets than they are taking care of themselves, which it's, <laughs> a, sense, it's an though. absurd thing, but also I a hundred percent believe it. Yeah. It's like so easy to, and I noticed myself doing this and I had to catch myself a little bit with it where if I go to a doctor, I'm fairly skeptical and I'll double check like pretty much anything they say, but I was just hundred percent trusting our vet. Right. <laughs> and like my, my vet's great. Don't get her. Yeah. Don't get me wrong. Like she's, you know, awesome, but it's weird. It's like on the flip side of this, it's like all trust advice given to my pet more than I would given to me. Yeah. Right. And so it's like, in some ways you actually, you know, I'm kind of like going against the rule right now, but I, <laughs> but I had to like flip it around there too and be like, okay, well, um, 
Yeah, you know what? This is the exact opposite of what I'm arguing. <laughs> <laughs> okay, just forget everything I just said. Uh, well, no, I will it's kind of no, not, I, though. It's kind of not because it could be a part of you that, like, doesn't want to listen to the doctor because you don't want to get better or something. Or it's just like, fair. or you think that you, you know better. I, think I know or better. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Whereas, like, the vet prescribes something for the dog. And I'm like, all right, cool, fill the prescription. Yeah. Like, give them the medicine every single day, right? Whereas for myself, I definitely would not, right. like, do the medicine every day. Like, yeah. I would go home and, like, research it and be like, mm, we'll see, yeah. right? Like, <laughs> eh, I don't know. But it's it's good advice, like, not just in the medicine sense. Yeah. Right? Where I think you made the good point about if your friend asks you for something, right? Even like something simple. And it's also a really good way to solve your own problems. Where if you think to yourself, what advice would I give someone else in this situation? Yes. I find that gives you much clearer answers than asking yourself, what should I do? It's so much easier to imagine what you would tell someone else to do than to try to figure out what you should be doing yeah. like in a vacuum. Because you're almost too close to the problem and emotions get involved and there's a lot of things that would cloud your judgment. You're not going to see it as clearly. Uh, it's going to be a lot more like biases and things coming into it. So how you would advise someone else is really helpful. I also like how he makes the distinction that this is not at all like the same thing as like figuring out what you want or what makes you happy. Like this is not really the same oh, yeah, kind of yeah. thing. It's like he brings, I think it's the example of kids, right? Where he's like, if you ask a kid what would make them happy and they say candy, like you wouldn't just buy them candy wouldn't all day because yeah. <laughs> it makes them happy. So he's like, in the same sense, you shouldn't ask yourself what makes you happy. It's like, what would be good right. for Or me. what do you want? Yeah. Yeah. It's like, no, no, no. What do you need? Or right. what should what do you, you do? Yeah. What should yeah. you be doing? Right. Yeah. And I also like, was it this chapter or maybe a later chapter where he's talking about how to like do these like small rewards for yourself? I think it's later. Um, but what he does have in here that I think is really good is going back to that candy distinction, right? He's saying like, this is not what you want. It's also not what would make you happy. You need to consider the future and think what might my life look like if I were caring for myself properly. Yeah, like the heaven and hell analogy. Right. So yeah, so he has this exercise where you sort of kind of a thought experiment where you sit and you think about if you stop doing all the things you know you shouldn't be doing and started doing all the things you should be doing and you just did that every day like what would your life look like in five years and then you do the same thing on the opposite side like if you gave in to all your negative impulses like all of us have that part of us that's like i never want to go to the gym i want to eat like pizza and donuts all day and like, yeah, yeah. that's just one you know one example i don't want to do any work i'd rather play video games like you just gave in to all those impulses right what would your life look like in five years and that's your personal heaven and hell yeah. visions right and now you have something to direct yourself towards and something to direct yourself away from well and he's got this line i don't think it was in the book but i've heard him use it on podcasts where he basically says that you're going to arrive in three years yeah it, there's not a question that some, that you will be there so you don't die, right? right. In three years, yeah. like you will be something. And no matter what you are in three years, you will justify it to yourself. Like no matter how successful or a failure you are, you, you will create a narrative for it, or right? Or like, narrative fallacy. You know, or, yeah, like you'll create a yeah. story for it about yeah. why it makes sense. And so you can't trust that you'll just get there that you'll just like naturally do good things to get there. Like you have to be fairly conscious about it. And that's why these thought experiments are really useful. And he's got that program, yeah. future authoring. Have yeah. you done it? No, I haven't. Have you? I haven't done it either. I've got it. I, is it self-authoring or future authoring? So I think it's future. The whole thing is called self-authoring. Okay. And then there's the future authoring and the past authoring like within it. I yeah. Think. Let's see if we can get a discount code. I bet he has. Like, I've actually got two licenses if you oh, want cool. one. Yeah, well, yeah. I was going to say if we could put in the show notes with if people want to oh, do it. good idea. Let's see if we can get something. Reach out. Yeah. So uh, it's supposed to be really good. Assuming we can get it, it'll be in the show notes. Yeah. Well, it'll be in the show notes either way. Yes. Hopefully we can get you guys a discount. Yeah, right. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. But yeah, I would love to actually check that out. All right. Rule number three, make friends with people who want the best for you. Ooh, that's a good one. 
And he's got a perfect example in the beginning about how when counselors at schools are trying to shape up bad students, they put them in groups with good students. Mm. But what always ends up happening is that the bad student brings down all the other good students. The good students don't bring up the bad students. It's just like one it's almost like bad that, apple. That, uh, yeah, exactly. Right? One bad apple spoils, yeah. or spoils the bunch or something. I don't know. Something, something, I don't know what yeah. it is. You know what I'm talking about. Exactly. Yeah. But <laughs> <laughs> it's like if you've got that, you could have just one person in your life who brings you down yeah. and that can do a lot of damage. I took a lot of team building advice from this chapter, actually. So it's yeah. kind of like hiring, hiring. You got to be like right. super careful in the culture really that careful. you're. Yeah, because one bad hire could. I think he even talks about that. Like mm -hmm. in a company, if you move a bad performer or somebody with a bad attitude into a high performing team, very often it's not that that brings down the whole. Team. Yes, exactly. Yeah. yeah. Well, it, it's also there's all these weird statistics. Or I guess they're not weird. They're not that surprising. But if you have one friend who's obese your chance of becoming obese oh, goes up like 20, 30%. It's a pretty big effect. Huh. Uh, same for like smoking, yeah. a lot of other things. I'm not 100% sure how they got that data. So I'm a little skeptical of it, but there is definitely like strong correlations between mm. people having similar bad habits within their friend groups. Well, I guess because then in their context, it's not really a bad habit. Exactly. It's right? what everyone else it's is just doing. just a normal thing. So in their context, it would be fine. It would be fine, right? It seems normal. It almost brings back that advice, right? Of like you become the five people you spend the most time with. Right. Something like that. Uh, Which is basically what he's saying here. Yeah. Right. It's like you need to be sort of selective in who you allow to be around you in your life in a way that will make you better. Right. And it's not that you should only like be friends with people who are going to like accelerate your career and all of that. No. But you want friends who also have good habits and who are also just who are good people in who general, people. too. Yeah. Yeah. Because, yeah, I think it's again, it's like if you hang around people with maybe values you wouldn't necessarily aspire to they're very likely to become your values exactly. too yeah. in the future. And he's got a good heuristic here that if you have a friend whose friendship you wouldn't recommend to your sister or your father or your son, why would you have such a friend for yourself? Yeah. I think it's really easy to maintain a friendship out of habit to just, you know, keep talking oh, yeah, to someone, definitely. keep being friends with them just because you've always been friends with them, but they might be bad for you. And it's yeah. hard to walk away from someone who's been in your life for a long time, even if it's necessary. And I think he also brings up the, yeah, so loyalty, right? is like something a lot of people feel when they hear this rule, like they'd be like, well, you know, I don't want to be like a disloyal friend. Right. And, you know, I think uh, he has a good quote here about loyalty, which is, I'll just read it. It said, Loyalty must be negotiated fairly and honestly. Friendship is a reciprocal arrangement. You are not morally obliged to support someone who's making the world a worse place. Quite the opposite. You should choose people who want things to be better, not worse. It's a good thing, not a selfish thing, to choose people who are good for you. It's appropriate and praiseworthy to associate with people whose lives would be improved if they saw your life improve. So it's kind of like a, almost a, a feedback loop. Yeah. That like you, if you do good, they do good. And then they do good, you do good. And you kind of play off each other and then grow together. Well, and I've noticed this, and I'm sure you've noticed this too, with, you know, some of our friend group who, where it's pretty much everybody is like entrepreneurial in some sense. Yeah. And, and even the ones who aren't start to become. Yeah. So, right. It's they like, start to yeah. become, but then it's also going back to that positive feedback loop. It feels like everyone ends up supporting each other in, you know, different little ways where it's like each person's lifting each other up a little bit. Yep. And so then the whole like group gets better and better, better over time. That's how like the PayPal mafia came into being. Probably, right? right? It's, it's like, like those, you get the right group together and then you sort of keep supporting each other over time. Yeah. Um, I mean, you definitely see this with hiring and money and it's just like from running growth machine, right? I know that a lot of the companies I end up working with come from referrals right. from friends or other companies and like they're all doing their own thing. And then like I'm helping 
my friends with some of their stuff too. Right. And so that's like building that. So like I'm helping them do more business and then they're doing more business. So they're like sending more business my right, way. Right. Exactly. It's like yep. you, you kind of get oh, this really so positive feedback yeah. going. Um, and unfortunately it makes it hard for other people to break in. Right. You need that yeah. like first entrance sometimes yeah. into a friend group yeah, that can, definitely. that you can do that with. Cause I think most people don't have a good friend group like that. Yeah. And I know that's one of the biggest struggles for people trying to get out of like a life that they aren't very excited about. I think there are ways to hijack this cycle though, too. Cause it's like, so I wrote about this maybe two years ago, a year mm -hmm. and a half ago. It was last, it was 2017. I think early 2017. It was kind of like how, let's say you live in a place where let's say there's not a lot of entrepreneurs around you, or there's a lot of people around you who maybe you don't want to necessarily be like. Right. Um, so books are one easy way, right? And like people throughout history have been using books to sort of get themselves out of this. Yeah. The first volume of that three volume Churchill biography I was reading, uh -huh. uh, he was stationed in India for a long time. And he was with a bunch of these like career British army officers and he was like, this I, This is like not what I want to go be. So he started like reading for like two hours every day. Nice. Instead of just going to like the club that they had for the officers and like drinking and like spending every evening and all evening just like playing cards and drinking. He would still go do that yeah. sometimes. But like he would get like two hours of reading done every single day. And it would be like different biographies to just sort of like biographies and histories to like expose himself to other great people essentially was his idea. Nice. Um, and I've heard of like other people doing that as well. I think Andrew Carnegie did that. Jay-Z. Um, yeah, Jay-Z's done that. And then um, anyway, a lot, I forget. There's one other example. But a lot of people have used books sort of strategically, right, to like, you know, be around great people, mm -hmm. even if they're not physically around them. But I think now it's so much easier with blogs and podcasts. And, you know, there's a whole lot of other resources, YouTube. Twitter. Twitter. I say follow interesting people on Twitter. Yeah. Just reply to everything. Yeah. That they tweet. Well, and you know, <laughs> like within reason. Yeah. Exactly. And you'll wear them down. Well, and like they'll exactly. start engaging eventually. Exactly. And there are so there are ways to like hijack this, but it's not still not easy. Like you have to put in the effort to do it. But yeah. And, and then I also would say, you know, another benefit is like moving to a place that has a lot of people. It makes a big difference. It's not easy for everybody. Like, you know, it's not everyone can just like get up and move wherever yeah. they want, but like it makes things easier yeah. for sure. And yeah. honestly, it's worth living really meagerly in a city where you have those opportunities yeah, than living very comfortably in a city Even where you in New York, I found out one of my friends who lives here, uh, I won't drop her name. So people won't, aren't like, Oh, this is how much she pays for rent. But <laughs> one of my friends who lives in Astoria, which is like two stops away on the R train mm -hmm. from here, actually mm -hmm. super close to here. She pays $800 in rent. Her place is pretty nice. Damn. I mean, it's a three bedroom, but it's like a three bedroom, two bath, like a pretty new building. They got a ton of space. And it's not bad. I mean, you're two stops. You're not in Manhattan. Yeah. But like 800 a month is like what you'd not be paying in like Pittsburgh. Yeah. You know, or maybe like slightly more than you'd be paying in Pittsburgh, but like not that Such much more. So like there are ways, you're right. Like there are ways to live in more expensive places on a, a budget. I mean, yeah. San Francisco might be tougher. That would be, but well, you got to live in someone's closet for 1500 a month. <laughs> yeah. SF is overrated though. Yeah. Don't go to SF. Sorry, SF. Yeah. <laughs> Everybody I know in SF is just trying to get out. Yeah. <laughs> Austin's not bad, although that's not cheap either. I mean, it's way cheaper than New York. Yes, definitely. Right? And way cheaper than San Francisco. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I was looking at, uh, okay, this is tangent, but it's okay. uh, I, was looking, I was looking at what we can <laughs> get in Austin, <laughs> right, for the rent that we're paying here. Okay. And it's just like, you know, here it's like, okay, you know, cozy one bedroom. It's like, okay, you're in Manhattan. It's not bad. bad. No, it's not bad at all. No. Um, I'm just saying it's like a decent amount in rent. Right. And then you go to Austin and you can get like, Top floor, floor yeah. ceiling windows, middle of downtown, like doorman, <laughs> right? Like Bump, one of the nicest to, buildings. Money to spare. <laughs> with like. money to spare, yeah. It's like, God, what am I doing here? <laughs> I need to get back. What about like, um, 
these like nomad communities mm-hmm. in different cities, like you think those are valuable? No, no, okay, because no. the kinds of people you meet there are not really gonna. Yeah, it's okay. it's really over. Because you've done that, right? Like yeah, you were, I've, I've you were in it. Colombia, and I was only in Colombia for a week. I was okay. just visiting some people, okay. and there's some good people in Colombia, but most of the, honestly, 99 percent of the nomad community are people who can't make it in SF in New York and Austin, right? And so they go live in Chiang Mai because they can live comfortably on $600 a month mm. while they, you know, try to do an Amazon dropshipping business and burn their savings. Right. right? right. There's like almost nobody doing anything interesting yeah, from so like- a coffee shop in Bali. Okay. Uh, and so you're not going to meet people who will really lift you up intellectually. You're going to meet other people who are kind of like jerking each other off about how cool <laughs> it is to be a nomad. On there, Instagram. And look, let me be clear. Like, there are some really great people doing it. And I'm not saying that they're like bad people. It's just if you really want to like grow intellectually well, and professionally, yeah. it's not the place to go. It's worth yeah. doing for six months yeah. to like have that experience of living cheaply and traveling the world and work from your laptop. It's really fun. But thinking that it's going to like really expose accelerate you your professional growth, expose you to a lot of super smart people, it's probably not. Not. Yeah. It's funny because like college should be one of the things college that should do that. Does but, this. Which I would say, like, I mean, at least I'm, I would say I met a lot of interesting people at CMU. But it wasn't so much the classes, and there are probably cheaper ways to go do it. But I think, like, in theory, college is supposed to be this. <laughs> in theory, it should. Yeah, I think, unfortunately. Especially good colleges. That was, like, part of the goal of going to a good college, right, yeah. is to be exposed to peers with very interesting ideas. But I don't know how much that's true. And You're mostly just meeting other people who are really good at taking tests and very <laughs> excited about their investment banking career. Like, yeah. It's not, <laughs> not what I would call an interesting person. <laughs> hey, man. Who knows? We might be investment bankers at some point. <laughs> All right, go for it. <laughs> Nats just get completely ignore that. And be like, there's no chance. <laughs> I need to stop talking before I really say some offensive stuff. <laughs> Rule um, four: Compare yourself to who you were yesterday, not who someone else is today. I love this chapter. This is, I think, this might have been the chapter I highlighted the most. This yeah. is like the advice that I have the hardest time with, pretty frequently. Oh, I think everybody does, yeah. right? It's, well, it's like, so easy to look at somebody else just crushing it and be like, oh, why aren't I there? It's also just like. Very interesting, the definitions of crushing it, right? It's super selective, right? Well, and it also keeps changing depending on who you are, right? So if you talk to like, I'm in the process of actually uh, bringing in a few more investors into Unlimited Brewing. Oh, okay. So I was talking to some one person in particular who's like a very wealthy individual. It was very interesting because he seemed very dissatisfied with where he stands in life. And in my head, I was just like, if I was at your level, I'd be like really happy. But I think that's a fallacy to yeah. think that, right? Well, it's like because he's he's talking about like he was mentioning a few other people who I didn't know about when I Googled them. I was like, oh, okay, like they're in the same ballpark as him from a net worth type of standpoint and what they've built. But it's just like he's like measuring himself against them, whereas I'm measuring myself against this guy, right? And it's like, wow, I'm like so far below where you are right now, <laughs> like many orders of magnitude and. It just you just sort of have this like false image in your head of like I would be so much happier if I was up there, but that's like not necessarily true because yeah. you would change your goalpost. Exactly, you'd always end up moving the goalpost. Yeah. I thought about that yesterday with the Falcon Heavy landing. Oh yeah, right, right. I was like, I wonder if Jeff Bezos is like jealous of Elon yeah. Musk right now. He's like the richest man in the world, but he hasn't you know done, done a big these, rocket launch like that. Like Blue Origin is still behind, and they're not watching his launches. Yeah. Right, so. It's like no matter how far along you are, right, you're still going to have someone to be jealous of. Yeah, and I think it's like uh, what Peterson's talking about here, right, is like get, taking yourself outside of that mindset yeah. of like comparing yourself to other people because that's it's kind of like a path to unhappiness. Yeah. Yeah, like you're never going to catch up to this. You'll goal. never catch up to this idealized version of who you think you should be as good as. Yeah. And I think another aspect to it too is something that uh, 
Naval Ravikant has said, okay. which is that like being jealous of someone is really silly because you can't pick and choose parts of someone else's life. Yes. <laughs> so you can only be jealous of someone if you would 100% switch places with them like right. right now. So he was saying like, you know, he talked to someone who's jealous of Steve Jobs and it's like, well, would you switch places with Steve Jobs if you could? And it's like, yes. It's like, well, no, like Steve Jobs is dead, right? right. <laughs> like, yeah. you, you wouldn't, you don't want to be dead. Yeah. Right? So you can't be that jealous of him. Yep. Or even like when he was living, though he wasn't like the happiest guy. Oh, like, have miserable. you read the Have you read the biography? Yeah, yeah. Miserable. He was an asshole, he was right? An asshole, like, like terrible to his daughter. And, and I would say he also had. Uh, he never really like enjoyed his money either. He, he had like one piece of furniture in his house. Yeah, I'm like, I don't know. He probably had like some type of weird like OCD type of mental issue too. Yeah. And not to say he didn't accomplish great things. He accomplished great things, but it's like, yeah, you're right. Would you 100%? Do you want that life? Yeah. Yeah. It's hard to say. Yes. And it's it, also it's, hard to say if he had any close friendships. You couldn't really tell. Like, from the, from the book, it, it didn't like seem really like it. didn't. Yeah. Yeah. Which is, I mean, I would say it's kind of like the lonely. reason why like, life is worth living, right? Yeah. It's like being with other people. All the social and, interactions. Yeah. So, so, yeah, it's like, would you 100% trade? And I think that's a really good heuristic. I hadn't heard that. Um, oh, heuristic. We got to take mm, a shot. Yep, take a shot. <laughs> <laughs> We're just joking. It's still it's 11 a.m. No shots for us. It's not fun. <laughs> we'll do it for the next recap episode, maybe. We could take a shot of Kettle and Fire bone broth. Yeah, yeah. that's not a bad idea. Yeah, kettleandfire.com slash think yep. in case we need to stock up before the next episode. That's actually a good idea. Well, the next episode's in a couple of days of yeah, recording. Okay. It's not going to get here that quickly. Yeah. Come on, uh, Justin. <laughs> I've got some extra. Okay. I, I actually have like a Justin shelf in my pantry, oh, nice. which is like perfect keto, bone, bone broth. broth. Yeah. But yeah, a- anyway, it's a really good, the uh, Vol quote that you gave is a really good heuristic for kind of getting yourself out of that comparison loop yeah. that I well, think a lot of us fall into. Because the, there's also the flip side, which I catch myself doing sometimes, which is a bad habit, which is when you find out something bad or unfortunate about somebody who you're jealous of mm. it almost makes you feel good oh, right yeah it was like there was somebody who it's like well at least they at least i don't have like x y and z right? yeah yeah it's like there's somebody who i used to you know kind of like want to be like and looked up to in the like writing marketing space and, and then i, I found out that to. yeah yeah <laughs> and then i found out that he's like had no friends Oof. and like people really didn't like working with him and he didn't deliver good results and like a lot of it was a sham and it, like i feel bad saying it but it like made me happy yeah right because i was like oh okay like i don't have to be jealous of this person now so you're trying to stop that? Well, yeah, because it's like, I think that's the flip side of this. Yeah. Is that you you shouldn't take somebody else as like a goalpost for your success, but right. you also shouldn't like, you know, have that schadenfreude that somebody further ahead of you is like failing in certain ways. Yes. Yeah. It's like we all are. Right. In our own ways. Yeah, in and, different ways. Yeah, and so, yeah. Like different ways as well. And so you just kind of have to compare yourself against who you were yesterday, not who somebody else is today. Okay, this is maybe sounds overly simplistic, but I almost view this chapter as like, playing a really fun single player video game yeah yeah so he has this quote it's like he says but winning at everything might only mean that you're not doing anything new or difficult so it's kind of like play a video game and it's like super easy to win Mm -hmm. or you're using cheat codes it gets really boring really fast but if you're playing a game and you're losing every time it also it gets really you know you just give up yeah or you don't want to play that game anymore but then there's some games which are like the right difficulty at least for that point in time, you know, you might get better and then they're not as hard anymore. Mm-hmm. But at least when you're playing a game that's like the perfect difficulty, it's so much fun. Oh, yeah. It's the same thing with like playing a sport. If you're playing an opponent who like beats you every single time and you have absolutely no chance, it's like no fun. You're just waiting for it to end. Right. And if you're playing against an opponent who you're so much better than, it also is no fun because you're just like kind of on a countdown until this is over. But if some games or, or uh, matches or whatever, like the Super Bowl this past week, right? 
it was just going to be whoever had the ball last that won, and it was such a close game. It's a great game. It was a yeah. great game, right? And it's like, those are the kinds of games, one, they're fun to watch, but for the players, too, I bet it was exhilarating, like, beyond belief to yeah. be per- so perfectly matched up that, like, they were basically equal. It was just, it wasn't obviously a coin flip, but whichever way sort of the, the results turned out, it could have gone either way. So it's just really cool to see that. Uh, going back to the video game example, right? Like, those are the ones that are most addictive are the yes. ones that have the built-in, like, matchmaking system mm-hmm. to find somebody else to play against who's, yeah. like, perfectly matched against you, where you end up winning and losing half the time. And it's sort of a good heuristic. So there's one other, one part of this, right, that I hadn't gotten to yet, which is, like, comparing yourself to who you were yesterday is actually the perfect opponent right because that guy is pretty much you but you can be like slightly better better it's gonna be or you can be slightly worse too or you can be a lot worse it's very easy to be a lot worse yeah than what you were yesterday right so it's a really good opponent to match yourself up against what's well, like inner game of tennis yeah right yeah the goal of a competitor is to help the other person improve right and so when you're playing against someone you're playing really against yourself yeah. if they're evenly matched with you and that you have to be better than you normally are you have to get better right and that's what to focus on not you know getting to someone else's level but where in your life can you improve yeah and how much have you improved so far yeah this was in uh, seneca too yeah where he what? says like don't compare yourself to what others have compare yourself to you know who you were before i right? love all these like themes that pop up again and again yeah. it's just like in so many different places mm-hmm their memes and, and the single player right. video game thing was yeah. in the elon musk yes. episode right yep. it's like grand theft life yeah, you treat right. your life like a game that you are you know kind of like watching from a third person view and you know directing then you'll behave differently than when you're in it taking it way more seriously there's also like principles where if you're in the yeah. system versus yeah, out of the think system. of controlling the machine yeah not operating it <laughs> Yeah, Man, so many, so much time <laughs> together. <laughs> and he, he gives, again, a really simple process for thinking about how you can employ this. Towards the end of the chapter, he says, you know, pay attention, focus on your surroundings, physical and psychological. Notice something that bothers you, that concerns you, that will not let you be, which you could fix, that you would fix. You can find such somethings by asking yourself as if you genuinely want to know three questions. What is it that is bothering me? Is that something I could fix? And would I actually be willing to fix it? If you find that the answer is no to any or all of the questions, then look elsewhere, aim lower, search until you find something that bothers you that you could fix and that you would fix and then fix it. That might be enough for the day. And then later he says, what could I do that I would do to make life a little better? I love that. Really simple question. That's all you need for self-improvement. There's a Carl Jung quote, which I don't know if it was in the book, but he's definitely mentioned it on a podcast before which was, I hope I'm getting this right. Carl Jung said, most people don't find God because they don't search low enough. So it's kind of like they keep searching for this like ideal that's like too high, too high, too high. But it's Mm -hmm. like kind of like exactly what he's saying here. It's like bring it down to like your level Um, and there's an improvement there. There's like an ideal to reach for in kind of like the everyday life. It's like your version of paradise. Exactly, yeah. Or reaching towards paradise, right? Like even just cleaning your room, right? Or which we've talked about from work clean, I think, right? Just organizing. Right. Well, and he's got a whole chapter on it. Well, and even Dan Charnas on our interview with him in the uh, work clean episode, he even mentioned something about like how daily practice, he's talking about yoga. I Mm -hmm. think yoga or meditation. No, I think yoga is what he did. He doesn't do meditation. Yeah, I think he he said yoga. yoga. Um, you're saying like the showing up every day for practice kind of thing or like whether you're going to a studio or doing it at home mm-hmm. is like his version of God, mm-hmm. like the ideal sort of that he keeps aiming for and striving for. And it's like that is what it is. And like the everyday sort of mundane activity, like exactly what Peterson's talking about. 
and, and pretty much all of us have that like keystone one or two things that we can do, yeah. right? Which sounds like for Dan, it's yoga. Like yeah. for me, it's waking up at a certain time, yep. right? It's like, if you can figure out what those one or two things are, that just makes everything else go get back on track yep. so much easier. Uh, but asking yourself like, what could I do today that would make my life a little better? It's a great question. And I've noticed myself asking it more since reading this. Yeah. Uh, actually, this book has had a weirdly substantial impact on my day-to-day -day, oh, uh, activity for like, you know, some books do, some books don't. This yeah. one, there have been a few things that I've noticed. Like some books are more like thought process. Right. right. Like, so I would say like anti-fragile, your day-to-day -day might not necessarily change, but the way you think about every activity changes. Yeah. Anti-fragile, my day-to-day -day activity changed in that I leaned into things that were like, more hormetic, yeah, right? Yeah, like useful it. stresses, yeah. right? Yeah, but one it. of the things I've noticed since reading this is thinking, you know, kind of seriously during the day, like what could I actually do that would make my life a little better? Yeah. Or what are the important activities? Exactly. Or, to yeah. prioritize tasks, yeah. right? It's like, is this going to make my life better? Uh, and we're, we're going to get to the truth one later on, but that's been really useful oh, too since yeah. reading it. So. Uh, yeah, I totally agree. Like, I think for me, I kind of like doubled down on like the gratefulness stuff that mm -hmm. I used to do like every single day. And then like, the past few months, it's been maybe like hit or miss. Like sometimes I'll do the gratefulness journal. Sometimes I won't. But I find that if I start my day with that, the day goes so much better. So it's kind of like you, right? It's like figuring out what is that cornerstone type of activity that if you do it, it just sort of like sets the right foundation. Yeah. And it's like I can deal with the way the rest of the day goes if I start with like something like that. Yeah, and if you like, don't know what that is, it's worth figuring it out for yourself. Oh, definitely. It's right? worth exploring for and sure. It, I think I feel like there's also additional ones that you can find, right? That you might not be doing right now anyway. Right. Oh, right? It's like going to the gym is another one for yeah, me. Yeah, same. And yeah. so I, mean, I was telling you before the podcast, like yesterday was just like an absolutely insane day, yeah. right? But I still made myself go to the gym because I knew if I didn't, then everything else would just be way worse. Well, and everything and feels crazier. better probably after. Yeah. In a weird way, right? It's like that, again, it goes back to that subjective versus objective experience. It's mm -hmm. like the facts did not change, like all the crazy stuff that happened in your day yesterday, all that stuff still happened. But your subjective sort of view of all of those things got so much different. The emotional response to pre and post workout, yeah. probably. And yeah. going back to the lobsters, right? You go exercise and you release a ton of dopamine and serotonin, yeah. right? It gives you a bit more of that a like confident, confident yep. feeling. Exactly. And so you feel like you're more in control, right? Yep. The dragon gets smaller. <laughs> yeah. It's crazy. All these it's crazy. Are like, yeah. yeah. So I also like can totally see how it took Peterson like a lifetime to figure out all of these things. Like he's been studying this stuff. For, if you listen to some of his podcasts, he like started it when he was an undergrad, mm -hmm. started looking at a lot of this stuff, probably even before, but he started really seriously looking at the stuff when he was an undergrad student. So let's he's, say 18 or 19, he's 55 right now. So it's been like a lifetime to condense it all. And as you were saying, like maps of meaning, and he talked about this when I saw him speak also, is like, he actually said in a lot of ways, it's easier to talk about these ideas in fiction. So he always talks about like Dostoevsky and he said he's almost trying to distill a lot of that into nonfiction, a lot of the ideas that are shown in that fiction, which is very interesting. And you can see why it took him like a lifetime to get to where this book is. Yeah, well, just the examples and the way everything ties in. So much. Really so rich. So much. We got to keep moving though. We're yeah. going to run out of time. <laughs> uh, which this, this happens. <laughs> yep. Rule five is do not let your children do anything that makes you dislike them, which I guess is a little harder for us since, since we, don't have kids. we don't have kids. I can relate it to puppy training, which actually there was one part in here that I really liked where he's talking about just positive reinforcement training. Oh yeah. You've talked about that. Yeah. yeah. Where he says like, basically you can teach anyone anything using it. So you figure out what you want and then you watch people around you. And then whenever you see anything a bit more like what you want, just swoop in and give them a reward. 
And it's basically what you do with puppy too, yeah. right? It's like you, you start by just rewarding them for everything close to doing what you want. And then you start taking away the reward when they aren't like yeah, as so close like as before. Directional. Okay, this you is the right direction. Vector, yeah, yeah. And you keep and tailoring. You, exactly. Yeah, so it's like if you're crate training, you know, the puppy to like get her used to going to sleep in her crate and chilling out in there when you need to leave. It's like first you just throw treats near the crate. Right, so she like walks by it, and so like, she knows. Okay, that it. direction is a good direction, direction is good. to go. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and then you just put them right inside. So she pokes her head in and takes the treat and walks out. Right, and then you put them a little further in, further in, and then you put them in the back, and then you give her a meal in the back, and then you give her a meal in the back, and you just close the door for a couple minutes. And you give her a meal in the back, and you close the door for a few minutes, and let her turn around. Right, and like you slowly, slowly up and the pretty time. Soon she's and like, pretty soon, she's just like you know, chill with going in the crate. Huh. Uh, but you can do this with humans too. It's also how he, I like how he uses attention as a currency of uh reward yeah you can use attention right well that's actually a really effective too. way too with humans yeah somebody exactly. does something you don't like if you just pretend that they didn't do anything that's a really effective like negative reinforcement yeah. right where it's like they're not getting any attention for that annoying thing they just did especially kids especially kids yeah yeah, yeah. or uh people who are being like because he gives the example i don't know if it's in here where it's like the people who always need to one up each other in oh, conversations. Yeah, that's in a different chapter. I think it's yeah, in a different chapter, exactly right? But when you hear about. that, the simplest thing you can do is like just completely ignore it. And then people get that feedback really quickly. Right. Like, oh, okay, I shouldn't do that. Yeah. <laughs> that's all that's one of those conversational behaviors where once you hear about it, you can't unnotice it. And you immediately also notice every time you've like done it in the past. You mean when someone tries to one up? No, when somebody first makes that distinction. Ah, like, yes. Oh, like when somebody first told you like, hey, don't one up people in conversation or you saw somebody else mentioning it. Yeah. Like for me, I was like, oh shit, I do that all the time. But now that I know it, I immediately notice it whenever somebody else does it. And I definitely didn't notice it before. Yeah. That's like a big kind of like conversation hack. Yeah. Like just noticing that it's done. Yeah. And then it stops you from doing it too. Exactly. Probably. Yeah. Or you like hopefully catch yourself. Right. Before you, Before you go, go into it. it. Yeah. 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 I would say I haven't heard you do it that much. I've gotten, well, that's the thing. It's like, yeah. actually, I actually don't <laughs> think I've ever heard you do it. Maybe you've done it. Maybe I, my radar is not that good. For well, it. to be fair, I feel like with friends, a certain amount of that oh, is totally acceptable because yeah. you're sharing stories. Yeah. It's when you're with strangers and in groups and yeah. somebody's like sharing a story and then you try to one up it. That's like a dick move. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but essentially, what Peterson's saying here, and it's not just kids. It's anybody in your life, right? The minute they're doing something that you don't like, cut it off. Because the more you allow that behavior to continue, the more you will grow to resent them. With kids, it's particularly important because you're basically stuck with them. Right. And yeah. so, well, and they're your responsibility. And they're your responsibility, yeah. So you need to make sure that they're competent to go out in the world and behave as good citizens. Yep. But also just for friends and things, right? If somebody does thing you don't like, you know, just tell them. Right. I think that most of us are really conflict averse. Oh, definitely. Where, yeah. you know, somebody does thing you don't like and you don't want to say anything. And it's especially hard with work, you know, telling an employee that they need to do something better. But I think it's actually kind of, this might sound bad, but it's kind of your responsibility to correct those behaviors early on. Because yeah. if you don't, then it's like, they might not know. They yeah. just like truly might not know. And then it's, it's really your fault. I mean, that's and more it's of, only going to get worse yeah, if you do exactly. nothing, right? The dragon's only going to get bigger. Yep. And so it's better to, you know, reinforce against the behavior early on when it only starts to get out of line than to wait until much later when you've got a lot more broken windows to repair. Exactly. Um, I did like the one about his like fifth and final principle from this chapter about parents. So the, I'll just read it. Parents have a duty to act as proxies for the real world. Merciful proxies, caring proxies, but proxies nonetheless. So it's basically like your job is to show your child the guardrails. And I think that also in a weird way is true for your employees too. 
when somebody joins, let's say they're not that experienced in doing what you hired them to go do, or they're not experienced to do it in the environment that you're doing it in. Like, let's say somebody's never worked remotely, but they're working for your company remotely. It's kind of up to you to show them what the guardrails are, because they might not know what the right behaviors are. Like, do they need to check in every day? Do they need to hop on the phone with you every day? Do they need to, I don't know, like, are they allowed to go to the grocery store in the middle of the day? You know, like what behaviors are allowed? They just have no idea. And it's kind of up to you to set those guardrails. You have to be that good example. Yeah. Right. And especially with the parents, right? You can't just completely shelter them and try to protect them from everything because it's not a real, you know, version of the world. Right. They're going to be completely unprepared for the real world when they actually get out in it. You have to be, you know, proxy, like an actual proxy for the real world. It kind of goes back to the university thing too. Yeah. Right. The hyper sheltering students and trying to protect them from, from any, ideas that, yeah, might, ideas offend that might offend them or, you know, like scary books and terminology. Right. It's like, that doesn't help anyone. No. It's, it's like, like those like kids are going to graduate. Effect. It's almost like the Voldemort effect. Uh, it's by like not by, talking about him, yeah. you give him more power. Yeah. Or no, it's almost like, like by not talking about it. They think like the problem will not exist. Oh, it'll right? never come it's back. Like, yeah, it's true. Yeah, it's like, shh, don't say his name. Mm-hmm. Like, shh, don't talk about that controversial idea. Like, Then it'll go away. It, yeah, exactly. Like, uh, instead, it's going to come back worse than ever, right, if you do that. so Well, and you'll create the world that we're, you know, a lot of people are moving towards where you literally can't have a discussion about an idea because people will get so incensed and riled up about it. Do you think that that's because people are tying these ideas This is not a tangent. This is related, I promise. Uh, Do you think people are tying these ideas with their identity and that's why they're getting so offended by it? I think it's part of it. It's like, if you're attacking the idea, you must be attacking them. Yeah. And do you think that's also why I found at least with, it's not so true with like our group of friends, I would say, or like there's certain types of people you can tell like this does not apply to them. But I find there's a lot of people who can't hold two competing thoughts in their head at the same time Mm. and consider both. Or, I mean, I think uh, lawyers do a really good job of this, but they're very good at holding an idea or an argument in their head, but not necessarily agreeing with it. But they can see the other side of it. Yeah. When somebody has done debate, too, yeah. right, where you have to learn to argue both, both sides, sides of it, I think that's hard for it's a lot of people. It's kind of a missing do. skill for a lot of people. It's just very hard for them to hold an idea in their head or two competing ideas in their head. Well, but in general, too, like if you get emotional about an idea, that's usually a bad sign right. because information should be objective, right? Yeah. Like the article I always cite is Crony Beliefs okay, yeah. by uh, Kevin Simler. Yeah, it's on like Melting before. Asphalt. And basically what he's saying is like, if you tell me that my daughter's doctor's appointment is at 2 p.m., not at 3 p.m., I'm going to be really appreciative of that. Like, because that information is very useful. Yeah. And that's the way we should react to information is like curiosity and, you know, potentially gratefulness. But if you react to information with like emotional, you know, disgust or outrage, that's a sign that there's some belief that you hold that is not based on logic and reasoning it's based on what he called it's a crony belief right it's based on some sort of like in-group acceptance right it's like i am holding this opinion because it you know makes me fit in with the group which i think is where a lot of it happens right is like that's where i was going with that is that like you know using the stereotypical like middlebury student as an example (laughs) you love middlebury i I love shooting you're not gonna get invited to speak there no i hope not (laughs) actually i hope you do that would be fun. Yeah. I'll organize a protest. Actually, no, I, I would not go, right? I'd rather go to like, <laughs> I'd rather just like roll into, you know, downtown Iran than like go to Middlebury. It's like safer there. Come on, man. I'll be your security. We'll get a couple other people. And it's like a great idea. It'll be fun. Yeah. As long as we can bring Charles Murray. Yeah. 
Uh, Should do a Middlebury edition of this podcast. Oh my god! <laughs> Sorry if any of our listeners are from Middlebury. But the point I was making is <laughs> that a lot of the outrage and response to ideas is to signal to other people that you are not or a bad person or that you're part of the in group. Right? It's like you might not even be that outraged, but you feel like you have to project that you disagree with it in order to be accepted. It's not this just is, those guys though. I find myself sometimes wanting to tweet stuff that mm-hmm. would be like so or retweet stuff sometimes. Maybe is more appropriate but like yesterday for example there's an article i saw that was like it was like how airbnb uh the cfo stepped down mm-hmm. and he had a side business within airbnb of a hedge fund did you hear about this no so he used to be the cfo of blackrock okay yeah then he became the cfo at airbnb so using airbnb's like cash that they had on hand he basically created a hedge fund inside of airbnb wow. to like invest in different securities and it was bringing in five million a month for them uh, <laughs> wow but it was also incredibly risky to kind of do that because like a startup is not BlackRock. yeah right like, right. i mean not that airbnb is like your prototypical startup but it's like he kind of was doing this it seemed like without anybody's knowledge <laughs> just sort of doing it they're not going to uh, admit that they had no idea he was doing it yeah right? it just seemed like well because he got sort of forcibly removed right now and they said the biggest reason was the ipo reason anyway well the article is really interesting to look at it but The thing that I found interesting is I was about to like retweet someone's commentary on it Mm -hmm. without actually reading the article. Mm -hmm. And then I stopped myself and I was like, wait, why am I retweeting this? Like one, like who does it help? Because this article is like everywhere right now. It's not like someone hasn't heard of it that like would actually read it. So everyone would have heard of it. And if they haven't, they're about to pretty soon. And like, why am I retweeting this person's? And it was a person who I respect, like whose opinions I respect. Right. So probably I would agree with the opinions, but I should definitely read the article before doing that. Yeah. So I was thinking, am I just doing this for signaling? Mm-hmm. And just being like, oh, like I'm part of the startup crew too. That's not really a good reason to go do anything. But, so yeah, but, yeah, but a lot of us fall into it. It's not just the Middlebury fit. Oh yeah, it's uh, really easy to do. It's like you're, so much of sharing stuff is just signaling that you're like part of this, part of this team, yep. part of this group, looking good. Uh, and it's hard to fight those oh, impulses. Definitely. Yeah, it's a lot of it's virtue signaling essentially. Yeah. But like we all fall for it and that's exactly, the thing, yeah, right? we all do like, it. I definitely think some people fall for it more. But, yeah, exactly. Um, yeah, or they have no idea they're falling for it. That's the other thing. Well, that's, uh, I mean, Peterson's made this commentary a few times that it's like a lot of the young men who are hyper like feminist yeah. and anti-male are doing it as their own way to like try to get in with women. Because yeah. it's like, this it's sounds very, bad, like, bad, but you don't, do you don't see a lot of like, tall, attractive, (laughs) successful men doing it. It's like the guys who've probably been ignored by women and this is like their way to try to like get in. Yeah, it's like their backdoor strategy, like weasel in. the Trojan horse or something. Yeah, exactly. Trojans, I guess. uh. Like getting in fights (laughs) with people on Facebook about, you know, whatever. And that's like not a good way to represent yourself. (laughs) Definitely not. It's like the word that comes to mind is like weasel. Yeah, weasel. It's weaselly. Yeah, it's (laughs) very shady. Okay, we got to get through the rest of the rules. All right, rule six. So this rule is set your house in perfect order before you criticize the world. So this was probably the darkest chapter in the whole book. This was the one where he talked about like the Columbine killers, serial rapists. Yeah. um, And he had like quotes from their writings. And like essentially it comes down to the world is so bad Therefore, the world should not exist, and I want to burn it all down and take everyone with me. That's essentially the mentality. And uh, what Peterson is saying is that it's not just these few examples of people who think this way, that it's more that all of us have these impulses when things don't go right. You know, might not go to those same extremes, but we have these sort of feelings of like, well, the world is unjust, and why did this happen to me? And that 
probably the best way to counteract that is set your world in perfect order. Kind of like work clean also. Like yeah. just get organized and fix what Something you can fix work. around you and or about yourself and then maybe look at the rest of the world. Mm -hmm. But I think this is a very relevant chapter for a lot of the criticism, again, that like people our age tend to do about the world. It's like a lot of the complaining about the patriarchy and stuff comes from people who aren't really, they don't have their lives necessarily together. Yeah, or it's, um, again, people that benefit from it. Right. And one, it's like the skin in the game thing. Yeah. Right, if you actually believe this stuff, then do something about it. Yeah. Don't start fights on Facebook. And two, or two or three or whatever, right? Like <laughs> before, you know, instead of going online and yelling about something, like set yourself as that good example, right? right. Actually do something so that you have something to say about it. Don't yell at other people to change. Or it's the same kind of thing too with people who, and this isn't quite what he's saying, but it's more related to your skin in the game thing where it's like, there's a lot of startup world commentators who've like never actually done a whole done lot. that much startup stuff, right? Yeah. So it's like, yeah, I think you're totally right. Like go do something and then you have the skin in the game, right? To like actually talk about something with authority. Cause you might find once you're doing it, it might be totally different than what you expected. Right. So your previous hypotheses might've been incorrect, but you would never know until you have skin in the game. Yeah. So, yeah. But I think what he's talking about here is more of like, you should kind of like, just start cleaning up with the smallest thing you can. So he always talks about in some of his podcasts, at least not in the book. I didn't, or maybe he said it in the book too, about making your bed. Yeah. Like you just start by making your bed. That actually helps make your life more it organized. It makes a big difference. Yeah. I notice a big psychological improvement if I just make my bed well, in the morning. it's such an easy first thing to get done. Nice, right. easy win. Yep. And then especially since I work from home, when I can see that it's made out of the corner of my eye yep. and like the it's apartment order. is tidy, then it just feels better. It's order and not chaos. Exactly. It's well, order he and actually, not chaos. I think he talks about this maybe in this chapter where he's like, if you have a giant pile of papers, you like psychologically don't even want to look at it. Right. So it's not even like you won't do anything about it. You'll just like not even want to acknowledge that it's there. The dragon has the dragon. gotten huge. Yep. And the only way that you can start to make it smaller is first by acknowledging its existence. I find that true with email too. Like I uh, bet yeah. I, last night I spent like maybe two hours digging out of like this huge email hole I was in. As I was reviewing actually for this episode, mm -hmm. I realized that that had become a dragon. Mm. We got an article a couple weeks ago right. and it led to a bunch of inbound leads, which also just led to a ton of email threads with like potential customers. But some of them were like bigger, some were smaller. And instead of like, you know, trying to get out of this hole of leads, which is a great problem to have, mm -hmm. but try to get out of it and actually, you know, acknowledge and do something about it. I had just been like, oh, I don't have time for email today or like these emails today. And then the pile just keeps growing bigger and bigger. Yeah. And I was like, okay, I just need to like sit here for two hours, put on deep house relax <laughs> and like just knock through like 50 emails. That's one of the big stress and anxiety killers for me too, is if I just take 10 minutes and get back to inbox zero yep. or Asana zero, yeah. right? Like you clearing so out everything. It's, just, it. it's amazing how much how much relief yeah. that provides. Yeah. <laughs> or just taking well, some and of it's that also out. interesting how much when you finish that task, you realize that was actually weighing on your brain a lot. Yeah. It was but, taking up that mental bandwidth in the background. Yeah. Right? You got some like latent RAM running on yeah. worrying about your email. <laughs> and then you take care of it. It's like, oh, okay. Even if you're not actually trying to solve the problem, you're just like, okay, I'll deal with it later. Yeah. There's a part of your brain that's still like dealing with the problem without actually dealing with the problem. Exactly. It's worried about it. Well, and sometimes it's hard like to figure out what to do about that. And he, he mentions this in a later chapter, but one thing I've noticed is just like working on a business, I kind of like always have that latent fear about yeah. money, right? Where Definitely. it's like, oh, what if we run out of money? Like, and yeah. like our cash position is totally fine, yeah. but I can't like kill that nagging part of my brain. Right. And he's actually got something later. And that's why well. people hire CFOs at some point. Probably. It's yeah. Like, hey, it's like, like, hey, you worry, you worry about, about this for money. me. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I just need to not worry about things, please. Just <laughs> handle the worrying uh he mentions later in rule 12 Dude, outsource cfo that, 
That's a really you can actually there are services for that. It's a cool concept. I mean, yeah. I'm not we're not there yet, but at some point it might make sense. Worth it. Yeah, uh, you just don't have to worry about cash. Then you don't have to worry about it exactly. <laughs> um, just do what they tell you to, and yeah. to worry when they tell you to worry. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but he says to like set aside times for worrying, yeah. and for like being immersed in the problem, and then when you're not in those times, like don't let yourself think about it too much, which yeah. is actually kind of a useful strategy. Yeah, it is also easier said than done. <laughs> Much easier said than done. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but, but getting back to this chapter, yeah. uh, the other thing it reminded me a lot of is extreme ownership, where it's like, don't worry about what anybody else did wrong or what other people should be doing. Just focus on what you can yes. do, yep. right? It's like, what can you do to really fix these yeah. problems in the world or these problems that you see in your day to day and what will actually you know have an effect and do that. Don't try to tell other people to change. Don't try to like reshape society don't you know like start yelling and screaming about it like see what you can do and do that in your daily life and what improvements can you make yeah so i I thought it was a really good chapter and you can tell he spent like a lot of time reading about tragedy and Mm -hmm. thinking about tragedy he definitely is as he even says like high in negative emotion so i think he like in a very deep way can actually and this is probably really scary is that he can probably connect with what like the columbine killers were writing Right. And that probably lets him go into those depths and then understand like how these feelings are connected. Which right. is part of his argument too, is that you have to recognize the monster in you yeah. in order to truly be a good person. Yeah. If you can't admit that you could be working at a Nazi death camp in another life, then you don't truly understand yourself. And, you know, people who, you know, pretend that like, no, like I'm not one of those kinds of people. I could never be like corralled into this kind of bad behavior. People who say that. Yeah. Yeah. It's like you're lying to yourself. Right. Right. It's just, you know, we're humans and people who've done all these terrible things have been humans too. Right. And if you were in their life situation, you'd probably do the exact same thing. And you have to acknowledge that in order to actually be a good person to actually consciously choose that I am going to do these good things. Right, exactly. And it is also way more expedient to do the bad thing, but you have to know, like sometimes it can be, right? It's like, imagine you're in that Nazi guard type of situation. It's like way easier to go be the Nazi guard than to fight against the Nazis as a German. (laughs) I can't even imagine, right? Like, yeah, trying to escape. Yeah, you're either saying I'm going to die or I'm going to have to like escape against all odds to get out of here. Because I'm sure they did not treat like people well who were just refused to trying to defect. Yeah. Yeah. Sure, that did not go over too yeah, well. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, there's one other thing from this chapter I wanted to bring up, which was he was talking about like, and this is, I think, related to like the Noah story. Mm-hmm. So uh, I'll read the quote first and then talk about it. So the quote is A hurricane is an act of God, but failure to prepare when the necessity for preparation is well known, that's sin. That's failure to hit the mark. And the wages of sin is death. So I think I like one, I really like that. And it's, Related to Noah's Ark in the sense that like floods are going to come in your life, whether that's for business, like there will be a time where like there's not as many clients or the economy is down, you know, whatever. There are different reasons why things could happen. But to not be prepared for any of those things is that's a sin. basically. Right. If you know there's something that there potentially could be coming and you don't do anything about it, that's your fault. And then in the Noah story, right, it's like he built the Ark and he was prepared for this. And that's why he survived. So and it's kind of reminded me of Taleb, actually. In some yeah. ways, right? It's like it's protecting like, against the downside and doing, you know, investing in protecting yourself from these major unexpected changes. Yeah. Like to be fair, you know, Talib would say that, like, well, in a true situation, nobody would know the flood is coming, right? right? Yeah, he would say something. Different. Yeah, he would say that. But <laughs> like, there, he'd build the ark, and then there'd be a fire, right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's true. But but a similar concept, right? It's like just because you think something is unlikely doesn't mean you shouldn't have some sort of contingency plan in place. Yeah, it's kind of like emergency too. Yeah, right. It is. It's like low chance of of massive social upheaval, but you should be prepared for it. Yeah. Right. It, it's a small insurance to purchase. Did you get your water? No. 
Come on, man. <laughs> I need to get my water. <laughs> every to, week I'm going to ask you. I was going to say, you got to ask me every week. That's like the social proof, right? I've, if I have to come on here and keep admitting that I'm just like not prepared, right? The worst thing would be if something ever happened and then you like, I get a text from you, assuming text would work, and then you're like, yeah, should have got the water, man. <laughs> True. Now I'm drinking the toilet water, which Neil Strauss told me not to. <laughs> well, it's fine if you drink from the top. Oh, yes, you can drink not from the, the bowl. Right. Just the top. Yeah, that's clean, right? So that's, that's fine. clean. Yeah. All right. Rule seven. Pursue what is meaningful, not what is expedient. This was a chapter that was mostly about sacrifice. Yeah, right. Sacrifice and planning. This concept. And what I like about this is how, again, he's bringing in the Bible stories yeah. and talking about how it's really easy from sort of a naive atheistic point of view to say, you know, like, oh, the Bible keeps telling you to sacrifice, sacrifice, like, or any ancient society is like, oh, they sacrifice this. And I used to think that for like Hinduism too, is like we would do these, what, what are called like pujas in our house sometimes, or like we'd go to them. It's essentially like a, it's like a priest comes, there's like a fire, you throw ghee in the fire, you throw wood, you throw food. And I'd always be like, what the, like, what's the point of this? Like, wouldn't it be better just like donate this? Um, yeah, I always viewed it as kind of archaic and like, it's like, I don't see the point, but I see that it's kind of, it's more like it's actually, uh, just representing the idea of sacrifice. Right. I wish it was like explained to me as a child, cause I would have made a lot of, a lot more sense. Actually, maybe I wouldn't have gotten it as a child. The idea that you have to sacrifice something today and you can get something in the future. Well, also, I think there's this unfortunate element with a lot of religious ceremonies where most of the people engaging them don't totally get the greater message. Uh, yeah, they might not. Right. Get it. So yeah. I wouldn't be surprised if most of the people around you also weren't thinking on that level. Yeah. Because now reading this. It makes so much more sense. It makes so much more sense. Yeah. And you get, you know, the deeper significance of the value of sacrifice and what that means in terms of preparing for the future and, you know, giving up comfort now for you know better success down the line but bargaining with the future yeah as, bargaining with as, the future uh, but being able Peterson to says. explain that being the underlying significance of the religious ceremony i i feel like a lot of people end up going to these things and doing them just because that's what they're supposed to do yeah. you don't think about it on the higher level it's like oh well if i'm doing this i'm being a good hindu yeah but when you get like these this level of explanation then everything makes more sense. And then you also don't even need some of the ceremony anymore because the metaphor itself is useful, yep. right? You know, and I think case, these ceremonies are sort of there to remind you of the principle. Right. That's probably the original intent, but then it just gets lost over time. Lost. And it's like, like well, you're just supposed to burn your ghee. There was a psychological experiment done, and I want to say five-year-olds. Mm -hmm. Have you heard about this one? The about marshmallow the, experiment? Yeah, yep. yeah, yeah, yeah. Was that replicated? I think it's it been replicated. It makes sense. But yeah. I want to make sure I'm not like quoting like an experiment that's been disproven. We'll look later. We'll have to look. But I mean, the idea anyway. was that basically the kids who were able to, I think it was like you get one marshmallow now, or if you can wait 10 minutes, you get two or something right. like that. And the kids who were able to do that, they tracked them later on in life and they had, they'd done better in life. Higher SAT scores. And yeah. Stuff. I mean, it makes a lot of sense, which is why I think, you know, it's a good experiment because it allows you to explain other things, but I mean, it, it does make sense that if you are able to delay gratification of, you know, if you want a marshmallow, you see a marshmallow right in front of you and you're like, oh, I should eat it. But if you wait 10 minutes, which isn't that long, but, but to a kid could feel like forever, magically we'll get two. Like that is a good proxy for how a lot of things work, right? right? It's like you have a certain amount of money in your bank account right now. You could go have like an epic weekend and go spend $50,000 this weekend, right? It just yeah. like, you know, you and I could combine $50,000 each and get like, I don't know, like take a great weekend helicopter to like somewhere and like just go nuts at a casino, drink thousand dollar bottles of champagne, buy lots of Bitcoin. Buy <laughs> that might actually be good. Literally like three or four bitcoins. <laughs> yeah. No, but like that's one way we could do it, or we could invest it in our businesses. Yeah. And probably 
you know, ideally would pay off much more in the long run, but you, you have to delay gratification for that. Right. That's sacrifice. That's like quite literally a sacrifice. And so. the point he's making too is that the way this got coded into so many religious ceremonies and stories was just people seeing who did better. And it was the people who were willing to sacrifice now for, you know, better results later, bargaining with the future, saving some of their food or stores, right? Not living too extravagantly. Or not living day to day, like not living day to day, right? And even uh, life habits, right? If you're sleeping in all the time and eating way more than you need to and all of that, like that will also lead to bad outcomes. But if you're willing to sacrifice by waking up earlier by ex- you know, they wouldn't like exercise back then they would sure. just live yeah <laughs> but, you know by doing your duty right doing your duty is kind of sacrifice like being godly yep. right is a form of sacrifice yeah. because it's not what you want to do right. you want to hang out and eat and drink and you know have sex and everything and like all the time you, yeah that's it <laughs> but if you sacrifice some of that impulse you have if you a work richer life and that's you know how it ends up in all these stories and that's basically what he's saying here too i also think the cane story is quite uh like the cane specifically the Cain part of the Cain and Abel story Mm -hmm. is super relevant because like sometimes your sacrifices are rejected, right? You might like work super hard on something and it doesn't go well. Yeah. And it's, you never know why, like it could just be luck. It could be there's something wrong with your sacrifice. You didn't do the right work. It's very like ambiguous. And in the Cain and Abel story, it's very ambiguous too. It's like God does not tell Cain why his sacrifice is rejected. Right. And then that sort of like despair that Cain felt and that sort of murderous jealousy, right, that he felt is definitely something people feel. We were talking about earlier, right? It's like people do have that feeling in themselves, maybe to greater or lesser extents. And some people just, you know, get unlucky. Yeah, some people just get unlucky. And that could have been for Cain too. Like, you don't know. I mean, it's not really ever said why his sacrifice was rejected. Which is smart. Yeah. It's like, in terms of wording the story, it's like, if you have this archetype who is trying extremely hard but not getting the same results as his brother right then you know obviously the better way to respond to that is you know to like keep trying it's not to turn around and murder the person or maybe adjust your sacrifice maybe do iterate in some way right like do something different yeah but yeah that's not what he did but i found it really interesting that the story is worded that way because it's like kind of shows a really interesting level of wisdom that you would not attribute to like a fairy tale almost, which is what, you know, a lot of people would say religion is. It's like these fairy tales, which is, you know, it's not quite that simplistic. There's a lot of meanings you can pull out from these stories. The flip side of that though, is that there probably is a lot of wisdom in those old fairy tales. Oh, definitely. (laughs) The ones that have lasted. No, there definitely is. But there's that uh, saying where like, um, was it Marx? I don't know. Somebody, it was, Okay, if it's not Marx, it could be wrong, but it's somebody from that time frame who said, like, religion's the opiate of the masses. Yeah, it was Marx. Okay, yeah, yeah that was yeah. Marx, right. So it's, like, it's not just, like, uh, story tales, poor, not smart people who can't afford better entertainment. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> right? It's, like, because that's, like, one side of the theory, right, about mm-hmm. what religion is. It's, like, oh, it's a way of, like, people to feel good about themselves, but... The more and more I learn about it, the more I like very strongly disagree with that. Well, I think they can both be true. Yeah, that's true. Right? I think that, but there's some really dark things in religion too. Yeah, some, like re- like hell is not a happy idea. Like, no, hell is a, but it's also a useful concept. It's a useful concept because right? that's sure. where you end up if you do not behave godly. Definitely, right? But I wouldn't you, call that entertainment. No, right? But well, I don't think opiates of the masses entertainment. It's meant that it subdues the masses. Okay, it keeps them in From line, rebelling. right? Because that's what an opiate does: is yeah. it it dulls you. 
and it like, just makes you kind of like complacent and stay in your place. And that's what religion can so do for the masses. You don't rise up and like, exactly. You don't rise like, up. You just do your duty. You farm your fields, right? You follow God's law, and it religion has done that for yeah, most of history, right. right? It's been a useful tool for keeping a huge number of people behaving organized in certain ways and, in organized yeah. fashion. But it can also have this rich, you know underlying mythology to it that you can use without being you know totally enslaved to the doctrines right exactly like you can have both like the literal versus the psychological and metaphorical yeah. um let's see was there anything else on this one i think the last thing is just in terms of doing what's meaningful and not expedient and it's kind of goes back to what you were saying about Cain, too, where Peterson says, consider the murderousness of your own spirit before you dare accuse others and before you attempt to repair the fabric of the world. Or maybe it's not the world that's at fault. Maybe it's you. You failed to make the mark. You've missed the target. You've fallen short of the glory of God. You've sinned. And all of that is your contribution to the insufficiency and evil of the world. And above all, don't lie. Don't lie about anything ever. Lying leads to hell. It was the great and small lies of the Nazi and communist states that produced the deaths of millions of people. And so then going on from there, he says, you may come to ask yourself, what should I do today in a matter that means how could I use my time to make things better instead of worse? So don't yeah. do, you know, he's talked about this a lot now, right? Don't do just what you want to do or what sounds fun. Do what is going to make your life better. Right. Do the meaningful thing, not the expedient thing. Right. I love that rule. Yeah. All right. Next one is rule eight. Tell the truth or at least don't lie. That title I actually think was a great title. Like it was yeah. very, <laughs> it's very simple. It's very simple. Um, but it's it's a great heuristic, right? It's what should you do when you don't know what to do? Tell the truth. And not in a way where you're being an asshole or anything. It's just leaning towards truth instead of trying to come up with a story. Right. And that's both for yourself and for talking to others. Yeah. Well, and I think part of it is like he's talking about acknowledging the problem too in this chapter. Yeah. Where it's being like, honest about the issue you're dealing with. Yeah. Like he talks about like for relationships, right? A big reason why relationships break down is like communication. But if there's a problem that the communication problem can be a problem that no one is acknowledging because they're just hoping it'll go away. And I think I think it's this chapter where he brings up that like if you just talk about it or have two conversations about it or a hundred conversations about it or two hundred conversations about it, you can actually improve the problem. Yeah. And the dragon doesn't grow as big, right, that way. So But if you ignore it, it is almost certainly gonna get worse. Right. It's kind of like what Dalio said in principles too. Yeah. It's true that for business. An honest interpretation of the world is necessary. Yeah. Um, or uh I think in the fiftieth law, Robert Green yeah, and fifty talk about too. That's it's rule number one. Rule number one, in, yeah. In the fiftieth law. Interpret the world honestly, basically. Yeah. Uh, and like Dalio's point that he gave a good example of was with health, where it's like, even if you have a terminal illness, it is better to know that than to not know it, because then you can at least try to do something about it. Right. And so we run from these really scary truths, but knowing the truth of them is pretty much always better than not. Yeah, I, definitely. And I also think there's something about this that, I mean, he's, uh, Peterson's definitely talked about this maybe in a podcast. I don't know if it was in the book, but where if there's a problem that you haven't acknowledged yet, it's actually the way your brain is interpreting it is it's the sum of all the possible problems. Right. Right. But when you acknowledge it, it becomes specific and it's like much smaller. So it's like way better to acknowledge it. It'll feel way better too. Is this where he has the rabbit and the dragon or is that in a later chapter or the squirrel and the dragon? But basically what he's saying is that you know there's something rustling in the forest and you don't yeah. know what it is. And it could be a dragon, but it could also be a squirrel. And many times it is just a squirrel, but you won't know until you go into the forest and look. Oh, here it is. Something is out there in the woods. You know that with certainty, but often it's only a squirrel. If you refuse to look, however, then it's a dragon and you're no knight. You're a mouse confronting a lion, a rabbit paralyzed by the gaze of a wolf. And I'm not saying that it's always a squirrel. Often it's something truly terrible. 
But even what is terrible in actuality often pales in significance compared to what is terrible in imagination. Oh, yeah, definitely. Because you, I mean, you, your brain, most of us at least, would imagine the worst for anything, right? It's like when you go to WebMD, when you have like some symptom, and then right. like, you always come out thinking you have cancer, cancer. or something. <laughs> Whereas like, you know, you could have something. I mean, it could be cancer, right? Be. But that's kind of the worst possible outcome. And at least you would know it instead of having the uncertainty of it. Yeah. And most likely, it's not cancer. Most probably, Most you'd likely. hope. But it's still better to know than not know. Exactly. So, yeah, it's much better to, like, actually go get it checked out. <laughs> yeah, and I think you were just... Was that from a different chapter? Yeah, it's from know? Rule 10. Okay, I was going to say, I was like, I just saw what Rule 10 was. I'm like, oh, wait, that's probably that one. Yeah, yeah. But that's very much connected to this. It is. And all of these are pretty common. And, like, the, the telling the truth one, I think, is just such a simple, useful rule. Yeah. And it's one of those things where it's harder in the short term, but in the long term, it makes things better. Yeah. Right. It was like I had this conversation with another friend again about business stuff. And he was basically saying that like a lot of business management is really common sense. It's yeah. just not done because a lot of it's scary right. Right? like telling someone that they're doing something wrong or firing someone or, you know, making like these hard choices. Most yeah. of them are fairly self-evident and you know what you should do. Right. <laughs> but you don't do it. Yeah. Or you don't tell someone something because it's like scary and hard. I mean, even on like a very micro level, you can do these kinds of things. And I, you also when you start noticing that I, like after reading this, I was starting to notice where I was doing it. Yeah. Where uh, so like one of the people I have working with me on sales. She usually will like BCC me on some of the sales outreach emails anytime that she does like a new script. And like every time when I see it, I always have like, because I've been doing it longer, right? So right. I just have like my own tweaks that I would make to it. But many times I just don't, I, I haven't responded and told her what those are. And I realized it was like, I was just avoiding conflict. Yeah. Even though like she works for me, she would have no problem with me telling her what she's doing wrong or what she can improve. I was still avoiding the conflict. So yeah, that was like one of the things in my emails last night. Remember I was saying it was like this batch of emails. Right. That was one thing that I had like marked out that I kept all of her emails like marked as unopened so I could go back and like tweak them. But I, I just hadn't gone and done it. So when I went and did it, she took the feedback so well. But it was just like not, it was something where in this case, right, it's like I wasn't telling the truth by not giving her what the feedback was. Yeah. And it's funny, I wasn't explicitly scared of giving her the feedback, but it was just sort of this dragon, right, in the back of my brain that I wasn't confronting. That's a question. Turned out it was been. a squirrel. Yeah, turned right? out it was a squirrel. Yeah. <laughs> That's a question I've started asking myself when I notice myself avoiding emails. Right. What if am I, I avoiding? What am I avoiding? Yeah. Right? Like, what is the thing that I don't want to say or don't want to deal with right now? Yeah. And I find that naming it makes it way easier to go do yeah, it. Yeah, it's like, why are you so worried about that? Yeah, exactly. Like, <laughs> why am I changing tabs? Why am I on Twitter again? It's like, oh, well, there's something I'm avoiding. Yeah. And it kind of is like, you, you can't just tell the truth to other people. You have to tell it to, to yourself, yourself too. Right. And that's especially hard if you're really screwing something up or doing yeah. something wrong or which we all living in a in bad way. way, which we all are, yeah. right? In different ways. And you have to like be honest about that. It's like, you know, I feel like something like this comes up every episode, but there's a lot of people who are overweight who don't admit it to themselves. Right. And that's one of those things. It's like hard to admit because it's your fault, yeah. right? It's like you got yourself there, but if you don't admit it, you obviously can't fix the problem right. and then you can't like get healthy again. And in all likelihood, it's going to get worse. Yeah, right. exactly. If you continue on the same trajectory or the same habits, right? It'll, yeah. Well, it's not going to get better. It's like, uh, I mean, one concept that kind of comes up and it's not a perfect interpretation of it, but entropy. 
So yeah. it's like, you know, basic law of entropy is that things... Actually, I would say there is an undercurrent of entropy throughout this whole yeah. book. Where things that tend things towards go, chaos. Yeah, things will go wrong if you don't do anything about exactly. it. Exactly. It's like definitely going to go it wrong. It requires conscious effort to maintain order. Yeah. And so if you are not consciously making things more orderly, then they are tending towards chaos. They will get worse. They yeah. will get worse, right? <laughs> and so for pretty much everything, right? It's like, you know, your house doesn't get orderly on its own. Yeah. Right? Because there is one state of nope. order and there are infinite <laughs> states of chaos. Yep. And so it is much more likely that it is in a chaotic state than an orderly state. Definitely. And that's going to apply for everything, right? yep. your life habits, right? There's infinite chaotic states for your life habits. There's a few orderly states, yeah. right? There's at least degrees of order, but it's on, a, you know, it's like on one line versus like, you know, the infinite types of chaos. And so it's it, so true. it all it's requires so conscious effort. And it's also so interesting how like, so, okay, so we learned like organizing things helps, right? Your mentality at least. Right. And I think we've kind of both made that realization during this podcast, like by the books we've read and some of the conversations we've had. And it was funny for a while I was doing my dishes in a batched format where like after reading work clean, especially I'd be like, okay, I'll do them like when I hit a certain volume of dishes and then just knock them all out at once. Mm -hmm. But I realized for my own like psychological steadiness seeing dirty dishes in the sink actually made me feel chaotic. Mm, yeah. So now I just do them after, like every time I use dishes, I just do them and then I'm done, right? And so it's, it's a shorter time frame, but maybe it's not the most efficient because now I'm doing them after each time I use them, mm -hmm. but I feel way more orderly. Right. And my space looks more orderly too. You get it. You don't have dirty dishes. Yeah. I say, yeah. So it's a weird, like, it's weird to know which one is like the right thing to do, but I, I do think it's important to like pay attention to how your brain is reacting to different states of chaos. Like we're talking about for the emails, yeah. like looking at what you're avoiding and then how maybe you can like hijack that system or like subvert that negative feedback loop. Exactly. Free up some of that mental RAM. I've also noticed if I let my emails get out of control, it becomes a dragon. Yeah. Like if I end up with like 50 or like a hundred on reds, mm -hmm it becomes way scarier than if it's like five. Oh yeah. I, and I'm more likely to avoid it if it's a hundred than if it's five. Even so though it needs no to be given sense. more attention. Yeah, yeah, that makes no sense. I, I'm the same, that's why, I, that's why I have to get to zero twice a day. Otherwise yeah. it gets out of hand. Yep. Right? It's like if I don't do that, I know that I'm like headed towards <laughs> in, insane anxiety. Yeah, exactly. Like I used to use the Apple Mail uh, app on my phone, mm -hmm. but I hate how it has, has the icon for right. like the number of unreads. It always stresses me out. So like Gmail app is so much better because it doesn't give you, the, you can turn off the icon. Yeah, I was really gonna say, easily. you can turn off the icon for the mail app. Yeah, too. I'm sure you can, but I also just like the Gmail app better. Yeah. Um, or you could just not have an email app on your phone. Yeah, that is also, also an good. idea. <laughs> There's an idea. That, There's an idea. That's, I think that would give me even more anxiety. <laughs> <laughs> All right, anyway, All right. rule nine. You gotta keep going. Assume that the person you're listening to might know something you don't. So I don't know if you probably haven't read my write-up of this yet because I just posted it last night, but um, I actually talked a lot about Made You Think in relation to this rule. So, you know, he talks about the three categories of conversations. Mm -hmm. There's like one where you're sort of exchanging information. Then there's one which is like one-upsmanship. Right. <laughs> like what we were talking about, right, is like you say something and then I want to up it and then you want to up it and no one likes those conversations. Then the third one, which is like almost a mutual meditation. And uh, so what I wrote about that is like, Maybe I'm getting too sappy about our show here, but uh, some of our conversations, I feel like we really get in the zone yeah. and it's like a shared exploration almost. A lot of them, we're like mutually exploring like a territory right. and we don't really have a destination, but we're like 
figuring out what the map looks like almost. Yeah. Well, it's nice because yeah. we've got like the one thing in common and then we're bringing both of our perspectives to it. Mm-hmm. And so it creates, at least for me, I feel like a richer perspective of it overall because you'll catch things that I don't catch. And I imagine That's I catch things too. that you don't catch. And then we have like a better idea of it overall coming out of it. Yeah. And hopefully that happens for listeners as well. Yeah. If you end up reading any of these books, you know, they'll bring their perspective to it. And people email us sometimes yeah, as well, which is really it. fun. It's so right? awesome. Yeah. Emails or tweets even. Or, yeah. Um, it's like they have an extra interpretation or some other thing they know about. We didn't, perspective we didn't consider. Yeah. Like I remember Bill emailed us for the GEV episode where we were, we both write about no problem. Yep. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So I, yeah, I like it when people give us their perspectives. Um, but I think kind of what he's talking about here is like you just can't have an ego going into these conversations. Yeah. Right. And, well, and also go with the assumption. The meditative conversation with anyone. Yeah. It's weird. You notice that sometimes, like out of nowhere. I don't know about you. Like that's happened. I think I've had that with like a cab driver before. Mm. It's like talking in a new city, especially where you don't know anything about it. Mm-hmm. It doesn't happen most of the time, right? It's like it's not like this happens all the time, but it's like when it does happen, it's really interesting and it's cool. How it can happen with anybody. Yeah. And then the challenge is how do you bring that about more often? Because yeah. I notice every now and then I'll meet someone and I never know if it's because they're really good at it. Or if I just happen to have a really good connection with them mm. where it can immediately jump into that depth. But then with most people, that doesn't happen. Right. And I never know if it's that, you know, it's some, them. yeah, is it me or them? Or they're just some people who are great at bringing it to that depth. I think there are some people who are good taking it to a deeper level really quickly, but it's hard to know exactly how you do that. Right. Because to be fair, it turns some people off. Yeah. Right. Some people are very averse to like getting into a deeper conversation <laughs> off the bat and it can make them you know, pretty uncomfortable. Right. And I've noticed this at dinner parties and stuff too, where if I try to talk about some of the stuff we say on the show about how like conservatives aren't crazy. Right? <laughs> oh, oh, good like luck. Some people will New be York. like, okay, yes, like, let's talk about this. And then other people are like, no, they're insane. Right. Like, and it's so wild where it's like some people just shut the conversation down immediately. Yeah. And other people, it's like an exciting jumping off point. Like, yes, finally. It's a mutual exploration. Yeah. Mutual again. exploration. Yeah. Right. I also like he makes a very minor, I think, well, he made the point minorly, but I think it's a pretty interesting point, which is most people can be interesting mm-hmm. if like prompted the right way and if you're actually listening. So he was saying if the conversation's boring, you might not actually be listening properly. We're not trying hard yeah. enough, right? You're not digging. Yeah. So because I've noticed that too. There's like some people you talk to, you're like, this is just not an interesting conversation, but it could be you. Which is interesting. I've never really thought about it that way that like I might actually not be doing a good job of listening to what they're saying and responding to that. Right. I might be thinking about something else or not really present. So yeah, I hadn't quite thought about that before, but it's a good rule to it's keep a good, in mind. Yeah, it's like if I'm bored in a conversation, it's my job to make it interesting. Yeah. And then sometimes you'll probably still fail, but like it's another tactic you can use to at least maybe jumpstart the conversation. Yeah. You can at least try. <laughs> yeah. I feel like you just need you know, five or 10 good jumping off points that you can use with most people. Yeah. I don't know what they are right now, <laughs> yeah. but it's something we could brainstorm, right? Where it's like, what yeah. would be good ways good to one. kind of hijack an article into a more interesting space? Yeah. One thing that I have noticed works pretty well is just like saying something controversial, right? <laughs> so obviously politics yeah. can work. I find like drugs works pretty well yeah. too, right? I so think you're also pretty good at doing that. You've written about a lot of cool, interesting topics. I was going to say, I feel like writing about stuff makes you care much less about being embarrassed talking about it. Yeah, because it's already publicly out there, so it's fine. Yeah, and I find that with this podcast, too, Yeah, is that I feel way less (laughs) anxiety anxiety about talking about any of the things that are controversial that we talk about. Yeah, It's like, well, you know, it's 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 already already out there there on the air. (laughs) We're not allowed to be embarrassed about these things. We're like, you know, scared of talking about it. We are voluntarily releasing this. Right. Yeah. It's kind of like a good exercise in that sense. Yeah. Um, And the other thing that I always try to remind myself is that, like, if you don't talk about it, then that encourages 
people not talking about it. Yeah. Which is kind of like the tyranny of the minority, right? Where if, you know, 1% of people can throw so much hate towards certain ideas that nobody else talks about them, it's like mutual or it's uh willing censorship. Right. And the only way to fight that is by not censoring yourself, right? right? Yeah. And like being willing to offend people and yeah. get in arguments. And yeah. I think we've lost some of that. And we kind of have to be willing to get into that. Okay, weirdly, this is going to sound silly given the state of public discourse in at least our social media-driven world right now. But I have noticed there is like an undercurrent of more people being willing to put themselves out there. And I think the more people that do that, the less like people will be able to be like shamed into being being silent. Right. Because that is kind of what happened, right? It's like so many people have stopped. They just don't want to talk about this stuff because they don't want to ruin their careers. Or like I know a lot of comedians don't even go to like college campuses anymore because it's just not worth it because they know they're going to make a joke that's going to offend one person in the room and start this whole thing. So they just don't don't even bother anymore. But I think more people are like, it's not mainstream yet, but I think there are enough. It's starting to be an undercurrent of like people being more willing to put themselves out there because and, and it's, it's exactly what you're saying it's the tyranny of the minority situation right now most people are actually okay with these types of things yeah it's just like there's a small minority of people who are very loud about this stuff and it encourages people to be quiet yeah and unfortunately a lot of them work in hr departments yeah. at companies yeah. because if you're super politically militant about your view of the world you know, it's like that attracts a certain kind of person yeah. who also likes to have the power over like <laughs> what is yeah. okay to say at a company. And then you get into like the Google situation yeah, where it's like nobody can say anything and everyone has to go through like mandatory unconscious bias training. Did you see, uh, I think it was on the Joe Rogan, uh, Jordan Peterson episode. Oh, yeah. About, about how they sort of like straight up contradicted themselves. Yeah, it was so ridiculous. He's going to win the lawsuit. Oh, certainly. He's definitely going to win the yeah, lawsuit. Yeah. So basically, for those that don't know, you can go listen to the Joe Rogan episode with Jordan Peterson. But I guess the Google, the YouTube CEO, and, YouTube CEO and, and Google, the Google CEO, yeah, uh, were in some panel, and and they brought up that men and women are not biologically identical, and like basically, well, all they, the, they said there were in differences in interests yes. between men and women, oh, yeah, which may asked, explain why fewer women yes. were in engineering. So they were asked about why there's a difference in the number of men and women in engineering yeah. and they both brought up reasons of interest right which is like exactly what he was talking exactly about. what the memo said yeah. which they both like railed against when it came him. out and they fired him and now he's suing them for wrongful termination wrongful termination and now they've basically just said that his, his argument, argument was right, was right. So, on stage on stage yeah, yeah. Oh, that was a- <laughs> it's like a slam dunk for his yeah. lawyer, I'm sure. It, oh, man. <laughs> he just became a very rich man because I'm sure they're going to settle. I'm sure they'll settle. They'll have to. Yeah. They'll have to. They're, they're definitely going to lose. Yeah. So, well, but actually, this, I mean, this kind of goes back to rule eight, which is, you know, like telling the truth or at least don't lie. Like, it's better to just, you know, with like science again in particular, right? Yeah. It's like we have to be honest about it before we can talk about the challenges and implications, right? It's yeah. like, it's like, okay, so science says something that makes us uncomfortable, right? The solution to that isn't to throw out the science, it's to right. say, okay, how do we act now that we know that? Right. Right. It's like, so, yeah, okay, so like men in general are more aggressive. That doesn't mean men should go around like beating up everybody and like mugging everyone and like raping people all over the place. Like that should not be how they behave. Right. Biology might make them more inclined to do stuff like that. But now that you know that, you know, to counteract your own nature. Right. Because that's why we have brains and consciousness and we can make conscious decisions. Well, and it means and society can structure itself so that that type of thing doesn't happen or there's consequences for it and the individual knows how to respond to their own urges right because there's two yous running up there and i'm sure everyone has had this 
instinct at some point where something happens and you are like a hair's breadth away from punching someone. Oh yeah. Right. Everybody's been and there. then you yeah. catch it and you're like, Whoa, where did that come yeah, from? You're like, I need to right. calm down. <laughs> the, the solution isn't to say, no, those instincts never happen. Right. Like everyone's peaceful. Yeah. It's like, that's obviously not true. Right. <laughs> right. The, the truth is recognizing, you know, what's under the surface there and then how we as, you know, conscious beings can handle that and still like function in society together. Yeah, I think also um, going back to the comedy thing, I've been rewatching The Office the past few months, and like, there are so many jokes in there that like it wasn't made that long ago. It was made, oh like, yeah, it's made. I think mean, it finished while I was still in college, so it's not like it was that long ago. But like some of the jokes in there, you're like, this would get like destroyed today. Like, there's a whole episode about Michael calling Oscar gay, and like how Oscar got offended by that. But the whole episode is gay jokes. Oh. That's like the whole time. That's like literally all they make. And it's a funny episode. But like today that episode would get like, I mean, I'm sure there'd be like a boycott yeah. against it. It's <laughs> like you just can't do I mean, There's There's like racial jokes all over the place in that show. And they're hilarious. And it's like a joke. It's right. not like they're, be, I don't know. Well, to be but, fair though, I think that's also part of the job of comedy. Yeah. Is to, to like. To be on the edge. To be on the edge, right? To be where that's okay. Yeah, order and yeah, chaos. Actually, is, Peterson's though, right? mentioned that a few times to Good Rogan comedy too. is on the edge. It's on the edge. Right? Yeah, it's like, always pushing that boundary. It's never like anything that's super neat and tidy because it's not going to be funny. And if it goes too far, it's not funny either. Right. Right, because like I mean, I've, I've definitely seen comedians who are like definitely straight up offensive on stage. Yeah, it's like Tosh like, is delicious. a good example of that. Okay. Where if you've ever seen his stand up, like his his stand up method is so strange because he'll start with like a relatively innocuous joke, and then he'll slowly make it worse and worse and worse and worse and worse until there's like three people in the audience laughing, and like that's where he stops. So he's like pushes each joke until almost it's too far. Basically. Yeah, until it's yep. like too far, just so offensive, and he's gotten in a lot of trouble for it. Yeah, right. But I wonder I, if it's like, a marketing strategy for him. Possibly. It's like gets his name like, out there. Louis C.K. does a really good job, I think, of walking that line. Yeah. Right. It's like if you watch some of his more so his older stand up specials on Netflix, he does yeah, a really good job of like saying some pretty what could be interpreted as offensive stuff. But yeah. that is also true. Yeah. And funny. Chris Rock right? does the same thing. Oh, Chris Rock. Chris Rock. Yes. <laughs> yeah. 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 It's like these guys are like that's what makes them good comedians. They found the line and they know how to walk it. But it's walking dangerous. Well, and most importantly, it's things that everyone is thinking and agrees with, but yeah. won't say out yes. loud. Yep. And then they're the ones who can voice that, you know. They're playing with the boundaries. They're playing with the boundaries. Infinite yeah. players. Infinite players. <laughs> uh, <laughs> Episode so, four or five? Uh, infinite games? I think it was eight. Oh, eight. Okay. Yeah, I want to say. I don't know. We've lost track. Just Google find that infinite <laughs> games. Maybe you think. you'll find it. All right, rule 10. Be precise in your speech. This is very much related to what we were just talking about. Yeah, we've covered most of this. Actually, we've used this. We did basically (laughs) cover this. Uh, It's essentially the same as like being honest, right? It's, you know, acknowledging the problem, acknowledging the problem, saying what they are, being willing to deal with it. And he ends it with uh, a really good summary, which is just to confront the chaos of being. Take aim against a sea of troubles. Specify your destination and chart your course. Admit to what you want. Tell those around you who you are. Narrow and gaze attentively and move forward forthrightly. Be precise in your speech. So don't mold your opinions or who you say you are, what you want to try to get approval from those around you. Like be honest, say, you know, what the truth is and deal with that as it comes. It's going to be easier than creating a fabrication around yourself in the long term. Yeah. And I think the good corollary to this is like if you say the truth or what you believe to be the truth and people can course correct you too, Mm -hmm. like if you're open to that Mm -hmm. so you kind of have to like not have the yeah to learn right yeah to adjust so it's not like oh i believe this and like that's all that there is and 
everybody else is wrong. It's right. Like, you got to put what you believe out there and then it's like an iterative process. Be willing to have those conversations. We've talked about, yeah. you know, a few times now. It's yeah. like be willing to disagree with people and have an interesting discussion. That's exactly right. Um, okay, rule 11, do not bother children when they are skateboarding. So this is one where I was confused initially, mm-hmm. but I got it after. And it makes sense now that you explained to me how like you think that he wants you to take this title and then instantly remember what the chapter is about. Yeah. It actually works. Yeah. Because this is an easy thing to remember, like the rule name. But then you remember a lot of the stuff that comes out of the chapter from it. It was kind of a lot about danger, at least. And then also how like uh, specifically with children is where he starts. And then how adult efforts to make children safer are very often misguided. Right. Um, and the you know danger has actually a value in teaching kids how to kind of act in the world, especially boys. Find their limits. Yeah. yeah. Uh, and you kind of have to let people fail and allow that failure and success to exist. Yeah. Right. Because he brings in sort of like the whole dominance hierarchy idea a lot in this chapter. And how it's totally, it's like a completely natural thing that's existed for pretty much all of biological history. There will always be a dominance hierarchy. Yeah. And this experimentation. Not just for humans. Yeah, not just for humans. Just for all over the place. Yeah, for all animals. And this experimentation and danger is how we find our place in it. Yeah. Right. And how we push the limits of it and how we expand in it. He says, you know, we feel invigorated and excited when we work to optimize our future performance while playing in the present, right? If we can't test our limits and figure out where they are and fail and learn, then, you know, we just kind of like slug around. We grow the loser brain. Yeah. (laughs) Right. We become the. Well, it's also not exciting. Like, and you're not alive, really. And that in the hierarchy, and this is, again, going back to some of the criticism of postmodernism, right? He says it's sort of a natural result. Because it's like there can't not be a hierarchy right. if there is any freedom, right? We can't all have – it's not equality. What's the term for it? Like when people say equality of outcome, what is the – there's like a term for it. Is Egal- it equity? Egalitarian? Oh, no. I think it's equity. Maybe? Yeah, I don't know. But basically, essentially, what I'm trying to say is like it's – I mean, I don't think equality of outcome is really uh, any kind of possible goal. No. Unless it's like we all want to be equally poor. Right. Well, I mean, it would also be necessarily totalitarian right. because you can't have equality and freedom. Right. There, it's a it's a scale. And so if there's going to be any amount of freedom, there will be inequality and there will be some sort of dominance hierarchy as a result because somebody has to be at the top of the hierarchy. And there's many different hierarchies. He makes that point a few times exactly. in the book, You're right? It's like there's many different games. There's not just the business game or the tech game or the politics game or the sports game. Like there's many different games out there. Yeah. But also what he's pointing out here is that the pursuit of goals is what makes life meaningful. And there is no reason to have goals if there's nothing to, you know, win at, to do well at. And if there's no, uh, if there's perfect equality, there's nothing you can do better at than anyone else. So there's nothing to strive for. So there's no meaning to your life. Right. Right? You can't create meaning if you can't strive for anything. Uh, And that's not a world that we want to live in. And I actually like his example later on of the like wimpy guy on the beach who oh, gets the well, muscle building course. So actually, and I think this would be, you know, a controversial example to some people because <laughs> it should not be, though. <laughs> it should not be. It's like every movie that yeah. has like ever come out. It, it, yeah. I saw uh, I went to movies for the first time last Friday for the first time in a while. Not the first time in my life, but uh, I saw the new Jumanji movie. Oh, yeah. It's like straight up the story. There's this like nerdy guy. And then he goes into this game with like a bunch of these other people and he basically turns into the rock. Yeah. Is the guy who he turns into. It's like straight up the story. But then it turns out he was like the girl who he was into was like into him all along. Anyway, that's not really a big spoiler. It's not really what the movie's about. Right. You find that out like pretty early on. But 
Yeah, it's like this story should not be controversial, but when you read well, it out loud, yeah, people I mean, may think it's controversial. So he's he's talking about an ad for a exercise project or product. He says the ad is famous for a reason. It summarizes human sexual psychology in seven straightforward panels. The two-week young man is embarrassed and self-conscious, as he should be. What good is he? He gets put down by other men and worse by desirable women. Instead of drowning in resentment and skulking off to his basement to play video games in his underwear covered with Cheetos dust, he presents himself with what Alfred Adler, Freud's most practical colleague, called a compensatory fantasy. The goal of such a fantasy is not so much wish fulfillment as illumination of a genuine path forward. Mac takes serious note of his scarecrow-like build and decides that he should develop a stronger body. More importantly, he puts his plan into action. He identifies with the part of himself that could transcend his current state and becomes the hero of his own adventure. He goes back to the beach and punches the bully in the nose. Mac wins. So does his eventual girlfriend. So does everybody else. It's weird that this is controversial. Yeah. That if you're, you know, a scrawny, unattractive guy, you should do something about it. Yeah, that should right. not be that a shouldn't controversial be a- <laughs> idea. But I think maybe people who find it controversial, yeah. I wonder if they're the people who don't want to go do anything about it. Mm-hmm. Maybe that's like maybe it's like a way to justify not doing anything about it. I think it is, right? Is saying like, no, somebody should just like me for my personality, right? And it's like, okay, your personality obviously is important, but if you're using that as a way to excuse yourself from taking care of yourself and from you know being healthy and making yourself more desirable for what are very clearly encoded biological reasons right right that's not an excuse right i mean i also like in this chapter there's a very much related but it's more men's behavior like male behavior with other males mm-hmm. and i think the going back to like you know particularly young boys this idea of um kind of removing danger from their world is actually incredibly dangerous because adult men don't act in a way that's like that's going to excuse uh, well i read the quote it'll make a lot more sense right. it's kind of reverse order from how it's told in the book but so the quote from the book is men enforce a code of behavior on each other when working together do your work pull your weight stay awake and pay attention don't whine or be touchy stand up for your friends don't suck up and don't snitch don't be a slave to stupid rules don't in the immortal words of arnold schwarzenegger be a girly man don't be dependent at all ever period The harassment that is part of acceptance on a working crew is a test. Are you tough, entertaining, competent, and reliable? If not, go away. Simple as that. We don't need to feel sorry for you. We don't want to put up with your narcissism, and we don't want to do your work. And that is like, I'd never seen it written out like that, but like it rings so true. If you've ever been in a group of friends that's like all guys, that is straight up what it is, especially if you're working on anything together with them. Yeah, that is literally the code of behavior <laughs> that you have. And if you shelter, you know, a young guy too much, how would you ever learn that? Exactly. Yeah. He'd never learn to do the hard work. Right. It's like as soon as he whines, he's going to get picked up by his mom and like coddled. Right. Yeah, and that's exactly. not how you prepare someone for society. And this is part I was, I was always trying to think, like, why is middle school in particular so tough for boys? Mm-hmm. I mean, maybe it's tough for girls, too, but I don't have I don't have that. Too. I don't yeah. have that perspective. Right. So from at least my recollection, like middle school is probably the toughest years of my life. It's like, that is the adjustment period, right? Especially socially is the toughest time right, right. for my life. So it was like, you kind of in elementary school, you're kind of like a kid really. I mean, you're not really, you have like danger and you have like, you know, you do stupid stuff, but it's not the same kind of thing. And then you go to middle school and all of a sudden like you're, you hit puberty, everybody's hit puberty and people's bodies are getting bigger or stronger or taller and whatever. Right. And like you have some pretty big size differences in middle school. Cause some people grow earlier, some grow later, some are going to be taller, some are going to be shorter. And by high school, it's like, 
things are might not be fully settled down, but people have kind of grown into like mini adults in some ways right. by high school. But sixth grade, seventh grade, eighth grade, you're like in this really weird transition phase and you don't even know what the social rules are anymore. It's like you're thrown straight up into chaos yeah. in those years and you're like just trying to figure it out. But I think those years are very important for those exact reasons is like you use those years to figure out what the rules are. Like how should you behave with other guys? How should you behave with girls? And like, what is the right way to act? And you're kind of figuring it out during those years so that hopefully, you know, as you get older, you know the rules now and you can kind of play the game properly. Yeah. Well, it's kind of like what he was saying about uh, two-year-olds, where a two-year-old isn't malicious. They're just testing the limits. They're like a blind person walking around in a room. They're trying to find the walls. Yeah. And, you know, you have to let them hit the limits themselves. If you try to pull them back every time they get close to a wall, they'll never find it and they'll never actually realize where the limits are. Yeah. And so you kind of have to let them run up against it. And it's, you know, in terms of like letting kids skateboard. Uh, and this is really, I think the chapter that most Jordan Peterson, I think gets a lot of good praise for like being a good influence on men in particular. Yeah. And I think this is a, this chapter is probably the best for that because he's talking about how, you know, men need to develop like for lack of a better term, like manly traits in that sense. Yeah. Like you have to be, be tough. Like, yeah. Right. And like be willing to go against danger and push yourself and challenge yourself. And he talks about attraction too, where he says that. If they're healthy, women don't want boys. They want men. Well, it's right? good for women, too, for men to be men. Exactly. Like, yeah. Obviously, it makes you more attractive, more interesting, but you're also going to be more successful, a more fit mate, right? It's yeah. like there's basically a biological encoding. function better for, in the world. Right? You know, because men want to basically reproduce with as many women as possible and women want to reproduce with the best men possible right. which is why he has this stat in here that women will find 85 percent of men below average right. attractiveness right. right which is quite interesting right yeah. it's like yeah that's a lot more than 50 percent right <laughs> so if you want to be attractive you need to basically like be the best version of yourself that you can yeah not whine about it and kind of like be a wimp and start fights on facebook like, right go do something yeah. right um, I also think earlier in the chapter, he brings up one other really good point about competence. Mm-hmm. So uh, how like well-functioning societies need to, uh, this is from a quote actually from the book, in societies that are well-functioning, not in comparison to a hypothetical utopia, but contrasted with other existing or historical cultures, competence, not power, is a prime determiner of status. Competence, ability, skill, not power. This is obvious both anecdotally and factually. No one with brain cancer is equity-minded enough to refuse the service of the surgeon with the best education, the best reputation, and perhaps the highest earnings. And I think that's a really good distinction that he makes here, too, because it's like all these efforts, particularly for boys, is to make them competent at life, like in different aspects of life. And competence really does matter, especially for adults. Well, and getting an honest sense of competence is really important, which is the problem with participation trophies, right? right? It's like if you're rewarding everyone just for playing the game, that's not how they learn, you know, whether they're doing well or not. Right. There has to be, you know, true rewards for success and true consequences or at least non-rewards for failure, right? People need to be able to fail, to hit the wall, to like fall off their skateboard if they're going to learn. Right, pain. Right, yeah. It's useful. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Yeah. This is a really, and I also found that he uh, elaborated on some of his maybe more controversial ideas, like the men and women stuff on Mm -hmm. this, in this chapter in a really like detailed and enlightened way. Sometimes he can be taken out of context in some of the things that he says, or even in context, like in some of the podcasts where he doesn't necessarily elaborate on the full background of the thought. Yeah. And in this chapter, he had the space to really like elaborate on what he's talking about when he says these things. Right. Um, and that's the so. that's definitely a challenge that he runs up against is that if you just take a very selective sound bite, he can sound bad. Oh, he's like 
his style is like tailor made to get taken out of context. Yeah. Like there's, it's because there's such like a because he's an academic, right? So mm-hmm. it's like he's used to lecturing. Like he's used to having a three hour lecture, exactly. As opposed to like someone who's used to doing press, who's used to like the thirty second soundbite. Like he's not good for the thirty second soundbite. No, that's not his forte. Well, and like the perfect example of that is his whole thing about finding meaning and how women can find meaning through child rearing. Yeah, right. And it's like he makes a great some great thoughts about that. And he's yeah. saying it's actually like that is kind of a gift that women have in that sense. Where let's talk you, about that in relation to the pay gap. The too. pay gap. Yeah, which it came up. Oh, the pay gap. Oh, pay yeah, gap. yeah, yeah. Um, well, but I mean, basically, like the the bad version of it is like oh women should find meaning in child rearing. Right. Which isn't what he's saying. Like, oh, women should what just go saying. have children and that's it. Like, <laughs> right. that's their only contribution to society. But like, what he's actually saying is that you have that option to find meaning. Right. Whereas, like, men don't have a built-in way to find meaning, which is why, like, you can see so much more, like, lack of fulfillment yeah. uh, in men and why you can see more of that, like, dissatisfaction not having a family in women. Yeah. Right? Because he, he makes that point, too, where it's, like, strangely enough, the desire for a family has been going up in women 18 to 35 and down in men right Right? so it's like something's happening culturally and part of the problem that he highlights there too is like there's so many more men who aren't going to college now and who aren't getting good jobs and who are unemployed and staying at home that it's actually becoming harder and harder for women to find good Good men yeah right to mate with he also makes a very good point about how when you talk about you know let's say women making choice to go have a family or wanting to stay home like so in my family for example right my mom is actually better educated than my dad but she wanted to stay home for the first few years with me and my brother. And that was like a choice. And then she went back to work after we got into like, you know, we were in school and stuff, but she made that decision. And I, and she always brings up the point whenever the pay gap comes up, there is a pay gap, but not in the sense that people will try to make it out to be. Yeah. There is an objective pay gap when you just compare what women make to what men make. But when you compare it to the same job, it is not necessarily, uh, it, I would basically argue, goes away. Uh, yeah, yeah, I would say it goes away. So what Peterson actually in the Joe Rogan lecture, uh, not lecture, but it's basically a lecture, um, pointed out, right, was that like the game that we're measuring when we measure income is just one game. Like it's not necessarily meaning, yeah. right? Like the arguing that earnings is the only way people can derive meaning is actually totally not true. Like there's other ways, like I would say for you and I, right? I don't know exactly what you're making right now, but if somebody said, some bank, right, was like, oh, Nat, you can come work for us full time. You have to come into the office nine to five or nine to nine, right? And uh, you'll make three times what you're making right now. Right. I would think you would say no to that. Yeah, of course. I not. would definitely say no to yeah, that. I love my life no right way. now. So, okay, we're not making as much as we could make, right, in that scenario. But like, we have other places where we get meaning from, like having flexibility, being able to do the kinds of things we get to work on that were fun. Yeah. So, dollars is not really the only way you would derive meaning. It's a good point. So he made but it's an easy thing like, to measure. It's an easy thing to point out yeah. in an article too. That too. Right? right? So it's it's an easy thing to measure. Yeah. How do you measure like the satisfaction we get from being able to work remotely or like not having to wear a suit? Yeah. Or, like, or hanging out on Wednesday morning talking yeah. about a book for three hours. Exactly. Right? Like, yeah. It, no, but totally, right? It's like you can't put a dollar value on that. Yeah. Or I mean, you could try, but it's not really, you know, there's no easy way to measure that. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, he makes the point of like women are just expressing alternative places where they can derive meaning. Which is like, could be children, it could be family, um, could be other things as well. So yeah, he's saying like, you're just measuring them on one game and saying that that's the whole story and that, mm. and that they're being like there's a lot oppressed. Of yeah, yeah, there's a lot of games. And they're voluntarily, in most cases, participating in those games. Sometimes. Sometimes, yeah. Yeah, some, sometimes they're not. I mean, but many times they are. I mean, like right. many women want to have a family, like as you're saying, even. Well, and that's actually the other weird side to this that I've noticed is I've talked to a number of women who feel guilty for wanting to stay home and raise a family. 
Yeah, well, our right. society makes it that way. It, it's sort right? of, there's been like this weird pressure in the other direction now where if you're- Especially in our socioeconomic group. Yeah, especially if you're like smart, well, you're like a particularly smart, well-educated, you yeah. know, if your mom particularly worked for a while, if you live in a particularly liberal area, right? It's almost taboo for a woman to say she wants to raise a family. Right. And that creates like an uncomfortable pressure, right? And it's hard to know what the answer to that is. Yeah. Because I've spoken I've spoken to like a number of women who've expressed that where they'll say like they don't want to say that to like some of their female friends or their family because yeah. uh and honestly like I've noticed I guess I shouldn't say this. I've noticed adults doing it too. Right. Where adults will tell their kids like, oh, you're too oh, smart. Right. To just like right. stay home and raise kids. Right. Which is like a weird. Insult. Like adults meaning like the parents. Yeah. The parents. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Or like, you know, professors or things like that. And that's like a strange like a, thing to yeah, say. It's like right? a reverse. Uh, yeah. Reverse societal pressure. Yeah. Because you definitely get more meaning from raising kids than from making money. Right. I Yo, can't I mean, imagine. Money is like money the, is like cool. I mean, OK, you need money to live. Yeah. OK. That's like how we measure things. It's a yardstick to show you what you're working on is, you know, work going well or not going well, but it's not the only place to derive meaning. That's yeah. for sure. Actually, that's actually a very horrible way to think about life. If money was the only way you derive meaning. Right. That's depressing. That's how you like the yardstick for happiness. Yeah. yeah it's not useful. I mean, I, Cosette and I took a pizza making class with this guy here in New York, like over in Brooklyn, like oh, super cool. cool Italian dude. Uh, and somebody friendly pizza? asked him. No, I'm no, just kidding. I'm messing with you. Yeah, I'm great. Messing with you. <laughs> <laughs> Had to go home and take my perfect keto exogenous ketones afterwards. Is it perfectketo.com? Uh, perfectketo.com slash think. Yeah, it sounds right. But uh, what he said was that he didn't want to open a restaurant because he knows what kind of hours that entails. Yeah. And it means he couldn't be with his wife and son. It's like, oh, wow, right? The, you won't really, hear a lot of men yeah. say something like yeah. that. Yep. But I had a lot of respect for that. He was like, I would rather, you know, make less money, but have the flexibility and freedom to, like, be with my kid. Yeah. Right. And that's cool. It's easy to respect that. But, okay, we're way off on a tangent now. No, but this is very much <laughs> still related. To actually, that. yeah, you're like, right. Yeah. It is still related to this because um, he is talking about games. And actually, he brings up this point, too, which is. Uh, women can win in men's arenas. Yeah, definitely. Men typically can't win in a woman's arena, right? Yeah. Like, what's you know what are considered male and female arenas, right? Like, yeah, um, not they're not exclusively male or female arenas. Exactly, so but they're like traditionally put, thought caveat. of that way. Yeah. yeah, where it's like a guy won't get the same respect for staying home and raising kids that a woman will get for being a high-powered CEO. Oh, yeah. right. I would say that. Yeah, it's like, or it's also harder to measure like staying at home and taking care of kids because it's like. It could be he's unemployable. It could be like he would rather be doing something else, but he's just unemployed. You know, it's like yeah. there are all these other confounding variables, but I know exactly what you mean. I'm trying to think what is another traditionally female arena? Well, I, I mean, if you see a guy who's a nurse, uh, okay. right? I yeah. think that men who are nurses get judged. Yeah, which is unfortunate. Which it's is a perfectly good job. Perfectly good job. Yeah, our yeah. elementary school teacher, right? Yeah. It's like, I, I know we're being like very stereotyping here, but these judgments definitely exist, right? If you see a guy in something that's thought of as a traditionally female role, like I think he gets flack for that. Mm, yeah. Whereas I don't think that woman working in a traditionally male role gets the same kind of flack, right? Yeah, Maybe it's like construction worker or something. Oh, okay, yeah. Then be like, oh, she's like, you know, butch or whatever. But if it's like a, you know, white collar role right like lawyer right i think it's harder for a woman to be a lawyer you definitely have to deal with that animosity but you don't get judged by society by for doing what has been a more male role historically you're saying yeah yeah and your mom's a lawyer right mm -hmm. so yeah there you yeah. go <laughs> <laughs> both um, my parents yeah it's really interesting all right should we get to the last rule here so rule 12, pet a cat when you encounter one on the street. This was another one where I didn't quite get it, but yeah, <laughs> I mean, I got it after reading the chapter. 
this was the most personally like affecting chapter for me because he talks a lot about, I mean, in the podcasts, he's mentioned his daughter and like some of the stuff that she went through, but I never knew like the level of shit that she's dealt with and that he's probably dealt with too, as being the parent, like a helpless parent seeing that. So she had some kind of, or has, I guess, some kind of autoimmune disease that was like misdiagnosed a few times and basically creates full body arthritis. Yeah. And so she has already had like, she's 30 years old. She's had like multiple joint replacements. They were like, not even sure if she was going to like live. She got her hip replaced when she was in her teens. Yeah. Pretty wild. Yeah. Sounds like she had like some incredible pain. She had to like inject herself with opioids, right? Like, yeah. What was it? Well, she was taking Ritalin. She was taking Ritalin and oxycodone yes, for a while. Oxycodone, but like, she yeah. built up a tolerance to the oxycodone. So then she had to like get off of it. And yeah. it took her months of withdrawal to go through it. She's doing all of this when she's, you know, a teenager. Yeah. Right. Which is crazy. Getting her hip replaced, got her ankle replaced. Uh, there was one point where they thought they were just going to have to amputate the bottom part of her leg. Yeah. Uh, until they found, you know, one orthopedic surgeon or whatever that knew how to fix it just absolutely wild story but it all comes back to this idea that there's going to be a lot of horrible times in your life yeah and so when you get the opportunity to appreciate something good you should always take it you should yeah. pet a cat what i like his analogy of what a cat is also because i i actually very much agree with one of my roommates in college had a cat mm-hmm. so i lived with a cat for like a year and a half and uh you never have the same relationship with a cat as you would ever have with a dog i mean so he describes i don't know if you have the quote in this one but um he describes cats as like in his version like the most perfect like metaphor for like nature like of being essentially like the arena of being they interact with humans but they're definitely not like fully domesticated in the same way dogs are they're definitely not like as loyal you know in the same way like dogs are but they seem to like humans and they want to hang around humans and uh sometimes they let you pet them right so sometimes they'll (laughs) scratch you right so that's what he's talking about is like you know if you pet a cat like that's you're getting an opportunity to sort of like appreciate being in nature the dog will Um, always pretty much excitedly run up to you and which is not how reality is like reality doesn't always go reality doesn't care about you yeah which is kind of a cat like it's kind of like a cat yeah Yeah, they don't like hang around but they'll like look at you weird (laughs) never sure if they like you or hate you yep Uh, sort of an animal that lives in your house yeah yeah (laughs) you got like a mutually assured non-destruction it's like you keep (laughs) feeding me i won't you know claw your eyes out while you sleep (laughs) (laughs) they'll watch you weird like yeah (laughs) there's one cat that i lived with like so I had a room, we had like five bedrooms in this house in, on Beeler in Pittsburgh. <laughs> and uh, I had one of the basement rooms or two bedrooms in the basement. And like, he would never go in there if I was not in there. And if I was in there and had the door open, he would come in and just like do like a little patrol and then just like get bored and then leave. But if I closed the door, he would like scratch the door until I opened it. Like he would just keep scratching and keep scratching and then if I opened it, he'd just come in and do his patrol and leave. And leave. I was like, that's <laughs> literally all you wanted to do, Max? <laughs> to make sure that you were respecting his space down yeah, there or I something. Know. I don't know what he was doing. But uh, yeah, but it's just like, it's not like a dog, right? Like a dog acts totally differently. Like a dog wants you to pet it and like hang out with and it, and give it attention. Yeah. Yep. Yeah, this cat was like doing its own thing. I mean, I don't even know what his agenda was, but <laughs> we cohabitated yeah. the house for 18 months and still don't know if he liked me or not. <laughs> <laughs> oh. Um. Yeah, but basically, I, I got from this chapter, I kind of got gratefulness also as a message. Yeah. Right? Where it's like appreciate the good things. Yeah. Yeah. He talked about like if you get a, you know, a good cup of coffee or get time with your family or whatever, it's just like everything, kind of like try to appreciate it. Yeah. Which uh, is how he wraps up the chapter too, where he basically says like times are great right now, but they might not always be. Yeah. Right. And so 
enjoy them while you well, have them. They won't always be. But they won't they always be. Won't. Yeah, yeah, definitely won't. There will be, you know, some sort of hell in your life, right? Yeah. Whether it's you or a family member, something like terrible is going to happen, if not now, within the next few years. Right. And so if you're not currently in some sort of chaos, then, you know, enjoy it while you can. It's like a pessimistic view, but it's also like a kind of necessary viewpoint. Yeah, right? I didn't find like, it pessimistic, almost more I've like, described it to some people. Like, so I haven't found it, even like listening to his lectures and stuff. He has this like sort of cool, like, undercurrent humor throughout his that's the thing his voice helps a lot yeah he's got that sort of nasally fun yeah. like joking voice yeah that he says all this stuff with even in the book there's some like it comes funny through. like yeah funny anecdotes and stuff that he throws in or just yeah. parent- parenthetical like notes he's got smiley faces in yeah the in the book. Book. so like, cool three or four smiley yeah. faces <laughs> i was like damn this is amazing i, I wanted to find a good screenshot of it yeah where I, it was like you know a biblical example followed by like psychoanalysis <laughs> with a smiley face thrown are there emojis in books yet uh well if you read emoji dick then that's all emojis <laughs> okay this is, this is moby dick written with emojis <laughs> this is a real book somebody made where they explained the entire plot of Moby Dick in using emojis. emojis. That's a pretty cool idea. Did That's a Kickstarter funny. for it. I, That's hilarious. You can still buy it, I think. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, I don't know if Kindle supports uh, emojis. Emojis. They probably have to just do it as photos. But that's cool that he did the smiley faces. Yeah, it's fun. It's just like fun. Yeah, but so, yeah, so I've tried to describe some of his ideas. So people, like, I think I've mentioned something like, you know, like the flood is kind of coming or the apocalypse is always upon you kind of thing. And people are like, oh, that's dark. Yeah. It's like, Yes, but you're just telling the truth. Not. Yeah, you're naming the dragon. That's true. Dragon gets smaller. Yeah, want to be a turkey. Yeah. Exactly. Don't want to be a turkey. Shout out to Taleb. I, I think I don't know if we've ever gone back and counted, but I'm almost 100 percent sure every episode has had a Taleb shout out. I'm sure. And his book is coming out soon. Oh yeah, very I, need, I haven't pre-ordered it yet. Actually, I should probably do that. Yeah, we should support Taleb. Yeah, but yeah, let's just maybe read the last line from this chapter because I think it's really good and it like sums up the idea nicely. And maybe when you are going for a walk and your head is spinning, a cat will show up. And if you pay attention to it, then you will get a reminder for just 15 seconds that the wonder of being might make up for the ineradicable suffering that accompanies it. Pet a cat when you encounter one on the street. It's a good way to wrap up that good way to wrap up. He's got some more stuff in what he calls the coda, which is essentially the afterword. A lot of similar ideas. What What he does in here that's kind of fun is he like ties in concepts from all the other chapters yeah and explains them in nice ways like relevant to common questions that we end up asking ourselves in the lens of you know him asking himself and so it's he ends up bringing back a lot of the ideas and it's kind of fun to go through it but i think the thing that i really took away was just that he ties in the chaos and order from the beginning of the book again where he opened with chaos and order and then he's going back to it now and so he says towards the end that when everything has become chaotic and uncertain all that remains to guide you might be the character you constructed previously by aiming up and concentrating on the moment at hand if you had failed at that you will fall in the moment of crisis and then god help you yeah it's kind of like you know emergency we rise to the level of our training right and so you have to build this character and build these habits and you know start following these rules now if you just try to follow them when chaos hits, it's going to be too late. Right. You have to like get in that habit well, yeah, while it's still too late in order. Yeah. Right. You can't be like when the, you know, the, um, the category, category yeah. eight hurricane hits New York. Like <laughs> I'll buy my water now. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> Although I guess you could, water would be pretty abundant in a category eight hurricane. <laughs> yeah. Water wouldn't be a problem. Salt would be the problem. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and food and food. Uh, shelter probably. Yeah. And a whole lot of other stuff. A lot of other stuff. Swimming. (laughs) Hey, maybe we should get our boat. We should get our boat. At some point. Mm Yeah. I mean, we're, I think this is our longest episode. Is it? Let's see. What are we at? We're at least two and a half hours. (laughs) 
<laughs> nice. <laughs> Seems we did. Uh, we did Dr. Peterson proud. We did. Because uh, that's kind of where his biblical lectures are all. They're like two and a half to three hours yeah, about. Was, I'm sure the Jocko one that came out today is probably three hours. Probably. That's like all of Jocko's episodes. Though. Yeah, true. But fantastic book. Highly recommend everyone check it out. Definitely. 12 Rules for Life by Jordan Peterson. Uh, we'll link to the biblical lectures. Um, I've actually not watched them on YouTube. I've only heard this podcast. Yeah. But apparently the images are pretty interesting too. Makes sense. I just like don't use YouTube. That yeah, much, I can't so. use YouTube. Yeah. It's, it's so much easier to just walk around listening to podcasts. Yeah. I can't like sit at home and watch YouTube. No. For- I can I can like listen to podcasts at the gym or like from walking or yeah. Or like even if I'm doing it like cooking or something, it's like a time to listen to podcasts. But Jordan I can't Peter- watch them. Jordan Peterson actually picks on people who spend a lot of time watching YouTube too, which is funny. <laughs> <laughs> that's, uh, that's, I think he brought it up in his- Come on, man, skin in the game. No. Yeah, he brought it up in like his Joe Rogan interview. Where he was, he basically said something like, come on, like you're just sitting at home watching YouTube videos, like go do something, damn it. And he's like, he's on YouTube as he's saying that because <laughs> Joe Rogan's hilarious. streaming it. And like Peterson obviously has a huge YouTube following. Right, I think he has like 750,000 uh, subscribers lot. now. Yeah. yeah. So it's kind of also uh, like sort of last note on this. I know we've taken up a lot of your time if you're listening <laughs> to this, but it's kind of amazing that like he has this many people listening to a message that is essentially biblical and mythological. Yeah. It's pretty incredible and really cool. That well, and most people who are listening to it would probably not call themselves Christian, right? Exactly, which is even cooler. Yeah. yeah. I wonder, I actually would be very curious what a somebody who views themselves as a, like, very much a Christian, how they would view his ideas. Like, is he sort of a heretic or is he a heretic? Yeah. Is he a, um, or would they kind of get it? Good question. Because I don't, like, from my perspective, it's made me connect more with the ideas behind Christianity. Right. But for someone who maybe is, like, fully in that belief system, maybe would view this as being, like, well, this is not... He's taking God out of it too much. Sure. Yeah. Yeah, Yeah, I don't know. know. I'd be very curious. I'm sure in the comments somewhere. Maybe someone will send something. Yeah. (laughs) Actually, yeah, we go look on YouTube and find it. Sure some people are. um, Maybe he's being attacked on all sides. Yeah, Um, probably. But he did say the Joe Rogan interview that he's figured out how to monetize basically the people who attack, a lot of people who attack him. Did you ever hear that comment? No. I think Joe Rogan even made this like his tweet about the episode was like, quote dr peterson i'm the first pick person to figure out how to monetize sjw's because <laughs> he said he, he elaborated on that being like if they block him from speaking somewhere more people hear about that oh yeah and then he's like if they let me speak then people hear what i'm talking about so <laughs> yeah it's kind of like he's done that a few times ways. where he gets banned from university and then crazy. just books a lecture hall nearby because he's makes no more money. he's not a far right like i don't even understand where the far right thing comes from he talks about like Social welfare in this book, too. Well, if you suggest that there's a difference between men and women, then you're a Nazi. All right. So that's, I think that's how it works. <laughs> and you can't tell me I'm wrong because there is no objective truth. And it's that's just, just your bias showing. That's your bias. That is you as part of the uh, patriarchy trying to oppress your power on me by saying that my interpretation of reality is wrong. We're clearly on the far right. Yes. Right now. Pakistan. <laughs> yeah. Oh, God. <laughs> All right, I think uh, maybe a quick shout out to yep. <laughs> uh, quick shout out to the sponsors. Um, yes. Thank you to Four Sigmatic for mushroom coffee, mushroom coffee and for cordyceps the, and the Rishi mushroom elixir. Been using the cordyceps actually for workouts. They're great, and, and especially if you work, do evening workouts, yeah. no caffeine. Um, still, oh, get energized, yeah. still get energized, but not in the caffeinated way. It's hard yeah. to describe. You got to try it. And if you do want some caffeine, mushroom coffee, also excellent. You can get all of that at foursigmatic.com slash think. Yep. You got a discount. Think discount. 20%? 10 15%, 15%? Something. Yeah. It's a discount it's for a sure. Discount. Yeah. Yep. Uh, so that's and the good. products are pretty affordable to begin with. So. Yeah. They're not bad. Yeah. 
So check out that. Check out perfectketo.com slash think for all your keto-related needs. Uh, exogenous ketones, great for maintaining ketosis. They've also got a pre-workout, which I like, which is a mix of like BCAAs, caffeine, and some exogenous ketones. So that's really good uh, for a little pre-workout. And their MCT oil products are really good. They've actually got a new liquid MCT oil out uh, that they just sent some. So, you get it? Uh, yeah, I've got it right there, actually. Oh, I see it. Yeah. Yeah. So it's supposed to be pretty good. I still got to try that matcha mct oil powder at some point so Let's that see. and then and kettle on fire so kettle on fire.com slash think for bone broth uh excellent thing to get back in your diet you know basically all the parts of bones and organs that we don't get anymore so check that out use code think there as well actually i think you maybe can't use the code think you have to go to kettle on fire.com slash think and order from yeah. there and then then it works and we're gonna see if we can get the uh think code to also work because we yeah. yeah might just be a little bug going on but um yeah but slash think definitely gets you uh it actually is a pretty big discount so there's like three different package options mm-hmm. so there's like one that gives you it's a smaller package it gives you 20 percent discount and free shipping then there's another one that gives you 25%. And then I think the third one actually gives you 30% nice. off uh, and free shipping for all of those. So okay. um, it's pretty good, you know, especially like it doesn't go bad, really. Like it's no, self-stable. It's self-stable. You can keep it for a while. Yeah. So just, I mean, if you know you're going to use it, just buy the biggest package and you save 30%. It's pretty good. Pretty good win-win deal Sounds there. like a smart move to me. Yeah. And if you want to buy anything else, you can also go to our support page and click through to Amazon. Yep. Uh, and anything you buy. Buy this book, actually. Through actually, that, yeah, buy this sure. book. Go, go pick up the book. Pick up a bunch of other things. Yep. Uh, we get you know, a small <laughs> cut from Amazon for anything you buy. And the next day, after you click through that link, it doesn't cost you anything extra. It just helps support the show. And uh, yeah, leave a review on iTunes. Leave a review on iTunes. Tell your friends. Um, subscribe to the email list. We just sent out an email, uh, our second one. Our second email. <laughs> yesterday. <laughs> so for all of you guys that. who texted me or emailed me or tweeted at me asking if the, <laughs> if the email, if they were still subscribed to the email list, I've actually been getting a bunch of questions about that. Oh, yeah? Yeah. Like, I guess we need to be better about that. <laughs> yeah, people will be like, oh, I think like I got unsubscribed or something. Can you like re-add me? Or, like I got that request. So Adil mentioned that to me. A couple other friends who listen to the show uh, asked me if like, if they're just for some reason not subscribed or they subscribed in the wrong place because <laughs> they assumed, because I think we say it on every episode. Yeah, we keep mentioning sent, it like, and then we never sent We had only sent one. <laughs> yeah. So people were like, yeah, I got the first one, but I haven't gotten any after that. I'm like, eh, it's probably my fault. Um, <laughs> so uh, yeah, go subscribe to that. We sent it out yesterday. We'll send out, we'll be sending it out more regularly. Um, we give the schedule for the upcoming shows so you can buy the books ahead of time. And then, you know, when you listen to the episode, you're already up to speed on kind of the ideas. And then it becomes more of a discussion, yeah, uh, mutual exploration, as opposed to us lecturing about the topic. <laughs> and you get um, all the bonus materials. Yes, right? bonus so, materials. So we talk before and after the show, usually about some work-related stuff, about other know, life things, life things, productivity books things, up. what yeah. we're up to. Just some interesting things over more there. Tangents. More tangents, yep. of course. Uh, we've been better about tangents lately. I know we've got we, we've gotten better. We're about losing actually, our way, like, going into the depths of the book. We're losing our way. Tangents, I know, losing our way. I'll have to do another tangent episode. <laughs> <laughs> we didn't do any tangents on that episode, though. We That's did, like, true. One. That was all on topic. Yeah. <laughs> uh, let's see. And then, um, yeah, leave a review on iTunes. Tell people. Hit us up on Twitter. Yeah. Yep. We love that. We love that. So yeah. Yeah. Until right. uh, till next time. Till next time. Have a good one.